It's an amazing world. In an instant, you can shop for a trombone, check on weather, and meet new friends. That is, if you can access the Internet. NVDA is a free screen reader that helps people who are blind or visually impaired get online. The American Foundation for the Blind tells you how with Learn NVDA. Free video lessons that teach technology for work and play. Launch your tech adventure. Learn more at www.afb.org slash learn NBDA. Hello, this is Larry Trumbull with ACB Radio, and welcome to the 2016 convention in Minneapolis, Minnesota. With me is Greg Stilson with Humanware, and we have uh, plenty to talk about with the new Braille Touch and... Let's uh, say hello to Greg. Hey, Greg. Hey, Larry. Thanks for having me on again. It's great to be on ACB Radio. Yeah, great to have you always. Excellent. So what do we got with this uh, new uh, device that's just been released? Yeah, well, actually, the timing is good. We uh, literally last week uh, started shipping our first Braille Note Touch units. So the Braille Note Touch is, um, for for those of you who don't or haven't heard about it, it's, um, it's really... What what I'm calling the the next class of what people traditionally call the note taker, um, the the Braille Touch is a, a a Google certified Braille tablet, and a lot of people ask me, well, what does Google certified mean? What is what is that? The, the big deal here is that the Braille Note Touch is the first accessibility device that's ever been certified by Google, and what that means is that the users of the Braille Note Touch can access all the same applications that are available to any tablet on the Google Play Store. So when when I say Google certified, Google has something like 25,000 automated tests that a manufacturer has to pass to allow their device to be on the Google Play Store. And what that means is that you, Larry, could buy a Braille Note Touch tomorrow and go to the Google Play Store and download any of the one point whatever million applications that are on there. And that's really where this device really sets itself apart from any assistive technology tool that's been out there today or up to today is that um, you're able to use your traditional note taker commands, your your Braille note functions, your, your your all the efficiency things that the Braille note has done for years and, and that the Braille note comes with its own apps, you know, things like keyword, key mail that have been all souped up for the 21st century. Um, and you use a lot of the same uh, efficiency things like first-letter navigation in in our apps or in third-party apps. But if you do want to download an accessible app from the Google Play Store, you can do that because the device is Google certified, and that's really where our goal with this product is to bring together the best of both worlds, the mainstream and assistive technology. And sort of what kind of brought us to, to thinking about this was that Myself, I'm a blind individual. I, I use touch screens and things like that all the time. But one of the things that we noticed was that when blind people are using their their phones or their their tablets and things like that, the the devices are designed to be accessible for everyone. And what that means is that I can physically touch an item on the screen and it will read to me what it is. They're meant to be efficient by sighted people. So uh, that's a very clean dis- distinction here. We have techniques with with uh, the screen readers and things that come on these mainstream devices, but they're really meant to be efficient by the sighted population. They're meant to be accessible by blind people. And so what we wanted to do is design a product that was both accessible and efficient for 
the the blind population. And so that's really where this device gives you a touch screen if you want to use it. Otherwise, it has a physical keyboard, and you can do all of the same uh, Braille commands and, and accessibility efficiency tools that you've used for many, many years, like first letter navigation or the, the shortcut keys and things like that. Um, but you can do an, uh, you can use them on the touchscreen itself. So we developed the technology actually to be able to type Braille naturally um, on the glass of the Braille Note Touch. So it physically looks like uh, your typical Braille Note, but where you would typically have keys behind the Braille display. Um, and that's a, a key component here is that it is an all-in-one device, so you don't have to mess with two separate devices or Bluetooth pairings of devices to tablets and things like that. It's all in one device, and right behind the Braille display is a glass surface that you can type Braille on, or you can use your traditional swipe and double tap um, gestures that, that you're familiar with with um, tablets and smartphones and things like that. So um, touch Braille is really the most efficient way that a blind person has ever had to interact with a touch screen. So, um, and as I said, we, we, we designed all of the Keysoft apps from the ground up uh, so things like our word processor, which now operates strictly in a Microsoft Word format. So you don't have to do any kind of conversion of Braille files to Word anymore. Um, you're always just writing perfect contracted Braille or uncontracted Braille in a Microsoft Word document. So you're able to do a lot of the uh, really powerful formatting stuff there too. So um, like I said, we really wanted to kind of bring together this marriage of mainstream and assistive technology into one device. And that device ended up being the Braille Note Touch. Great. That really sounds exciting. Does this device uh, have uh, speech capability as well as the Braille display? It does, yep. So you can use speech output. Um, you can turn the speech output off. One of the really the nice benefits of touch Braille, which is the typing on the glass, is that you don't ever hear the physical clicking of keys. So you can turn your speech off, just have the Braille running, and you can be typing your notes in your classroom or in your meeting or writing a paper or whatever. And it's totally silent. And that's really what's really awesome is that sighted people, you know, sighted classmates or colleagues can write with a pencil and paper completely silently. Well, we now as blind people have the ability to not really stand out in the middle of a classroom anymore and, and do the click clack of keys and stuff like that. But as I said, the, the Braille Note Touch does come with a carrying case with a keyboard attached to it. And you can flip that down right on top of the screen and use it just like your traditional braille note taker that you've used for the past you know 16 years oh wonderful and i'm assuming that uh, with all the previous uh, software that you've had on the previous devices uh, you can do uh, streaming with this as well yeah yeah and it's it's even more than that now now you can do streaming but i mean i i can download so many different apps for streaming so for example i can download podcast apps i could download um, you know, we've, we've got YouTube on the device, so if you want to just quick watch a YouTube video, you can do that. Um, every week, we're doing um, a snapshot tutorial where we're releasing uh, basically a five-minute video of some of the really cool things you can do with the Braille Note Touch. Like this week, we just did one on showing just how easy it is to access YouTube. You don't have to, you know, one of the things I find myself doing on my phone all the time is swiping right about a thousand times until I find what I'm looking for. And uh, the nice thing with the Braille Note Touch is that you can type the first letter of on, on YouTube. For example, if, I, if I'm looking for the search box and I have no idea where the search box is located on the screen, rather than running my finger all over the screen or swiping right a hundred times, I can just type S and it'll jump straight to search. 
Oh, that definitely will save some time. <laughs> yeah, yep. Especially with apps that you're not familiar with. If you if you just know kind of what you're looking for and you say, okay, well, somewhere on the screen's got to be a search button or a done button or a send button, you can you can type the first letter and jump right there. Oh, great. So I guess everybody will really be looking forward to seeing this device. You'll be featuring it at the convention, right? Absolutely, yep, yep. So it will, it'll be, we'll have uh, some Braille Note touches there. You'll be able to try out Touch Braille and just see how natural it is. We've got a lot of positive feedback uh, on Touch Braille. Um, basically, when you type Touch Braille, you lay 10 fingers on the screen, you get a quick vibration from the device, and then you just start typing as if there were really keys there. And what's really cool about Touch Braille is that it follows your fingers. You don't need to hit keys, virtual keys, anywhere on the screen. You just type naturally where you believe the Braille key should be, and uh, it'll it'll follow your fingers. So it not only you know identifies your fingers, but identifies which fingers they are. And that's what's really remarkable about Touch Braille. We uh, this is patent pending technology that we uh, we developed from the ground up. So you'll be able to play with that. Um, we'll have some really cool apps uh, on the device that you'll be able to see. Um, it does have an HDMI port so that if there is, we, we do have anybody with vision, we can plug into a large monitor and you can just see what's going on on the screen as well. With regard to the other devices, you'll see a pattern. One of the things I want to talk about is for our low vision users. Um, the product's called the Prodigy Connect. And you'll see sort of a pattern here because one of the things that we're starting to do is really try to, as I said, marry the best of both worlds. And that's really what I think we've done with the Prodigy Connect as well is the Prodigy Connect has... The Prodigy software inside of it, and it's basically it's a, a tablet that sits into a stand and allows you to use it as a, a, a low vision magnifier, so a portable CCTV. But if you want to, you know, leave the Prodigy application, which allows you to put a piece of paper underneath it, you can magnify it in live mode in real time to read what you're looking at, or you can use the Prodigy's embedded optical character recognition so I can hit the scan and read button and it just starts reading to you which is really cool there but when I'm done with it and let's say I want to go take the Prodigy um, uh, stuff that I read and move it to Dropbox or if you sent me an email Larry and I want to read the email I can actually leave the Prodigy software open up an email and magnify that and actually see it so it's really this best of both worlds we're taking the efficiency of reading in a low vision magnifier that's designed for low vision people um, combined with the openness of a, a, an Android tablet. So this is really, a, you know, an, an Android, I think it's a 12 inch tablet that you're using. So um, it's, it's sort of this combination of the two technologies. And I think that that's really what our users of today are expecting is that we don't want a device that's just doing one thing. We want something that is easy for me to use that does a whole bunch of things. And so that's really where, uh, where I think HumanWare, you're going to start seeing a lot of our focus being put. You can contact uh, HumanWare at www.humanware.com. Um, you can contact our customer service at info at humanware.com or our, customer, or our tech support at support at humanware.com. And of course, our phone number is 800-722-3393. Excellent, and thank you for being a Ruby sponsor for the 2016 ACB convention. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
This is Larry Turnbull with ACB Radio. Does your tie match your shirt for your date tonight? Are you dying to know what's in the picture one of your friends sent you? What are the heating instructions for your dinner tonight? Give the Bespecular app a try. Bespecular is an awesome new app on iOS and Android specifically developed for the visually impaired and deafblind. The Bespecular app is a fun, quick, and easy way to get answers to your everyday situations. Download the Bespecular app on the App Store or Play Store today. Want an awesome prize? Download the Bespecular app and come on over to Booth 38 to see if you want a prize. Hello, everybody. This is Larry Turnbull with ACB Radio, and with me is Mark Masano of AT&T, and we're going to be... Uh, talking about uh, AT&T's role in accessibility, and thank you, AT&T, for being an Onyx sponsor of the 2016 ACB Conference and Convention. Hello, Mark. Hello, how are you? Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I appreciate you asking me to talk about AT&T and what we've done with accessibility, because we, we have a good story, and we, we do like to tell it. So, um I am actually the Deputy Chief Accessibility Officer for AT&T, so I have a centralized group that was created to kind of have accessibility um, requirements and things across the company that would have a centralized um, group that either, you know, I, ha I have a group of experts on um, solution engineers that are a group across our products and services that, um, you know, look at the products and services from a very technical perspective. Um, we have an administrative group as well to make sure that we're um, reaching out to all the, um, you know, departments we have within AT&T to make sure everyone's considering and doing the right thing when it comes to accessibility. Uh, so uh, the group is called CATO, and CATO stands for the Corporate Accessibility Technology Office. We're a group of about, I have about 45 employees across the U.S., um, so it sounds like a lot of employees, but as you know, AT&T is a huge company, so we, we really actually look at a lot of products and services, um, over 10,000 a year um, that we come, that come across our group to kind of ask for help. Um, some of the business units are very trained. They do this every day, and then we actually, you know, always have new products and services being developed for people um, have not had experience with accessibility and we're able to lead them in the right direction. So um, our group leads the efforts of AT&T for, for people with disabilities in the design and development of products. And we uh, partner, as I mentioned, with each business unit. And, and we're here to definitely to promote um, accessibility and foster innovations. And the other unique thing about the accessibility program at AT&T is um, we actually believe in what we're saying. So my group is made up of uh, people with all kinds of different abilities. So we can definitely test for accessibility as a product or service comes through our doors. Um, we have, you know, people that can that use screen readers. We have people um, that have low vision and, you know, maybe use magnification. We have, um, we can test for hearing. So we, we actually um, are able to test quickly and uh, with people, you know, that are technologists um, that um, have the ability to do those tests right away. The, as far as products go, I mean, everybody's got a mobile phone. Smartphones are the things of the future. So, you know, we hold our manufacturers accountable. Um, we, you know, there's language in our contracts, obviously, and the manufacturers actually have taken up the, um, the effort on their own as well. Uh, but to make their products and services accessible. 
Um, so we, you know, we don't manufacture phones. We obviously are, um, we sell mobile phones, but we do, um, we do work very closely with the manufacturers to ensure that um, the features are, uh, are available that are necessary. Um, and obviously then we look at products and services from web. I have an entire web team um, that um, are web accessibility experts and, and that's their job is to work with our web developers and our web programmers and to create templates that are accessible. So as we put content on the web, it's accessible. Um, we do testing there. We work with um, vendors of ours um, as well um, to ensure that's done. The training from an accessibility perspective, one of the things that we discovered at uh, AT&T is a lot of things are out there, um, like on the cell phones, the accessibility features are there, um, but there's not a lot of information or there hasn't been a lot of, of information to how to use that, you know, those devices or how to use those features. So we've created a training where we travel all over the U.S. It's called um, WIND workshops, which are um, uh, workshops for independent uh, living. So it, it kind of just teaches what I call 101 on cell phones and, and mobile devices, tablets and tablets. And, you know, it, the features are there. It's nothing special, but, uh, you know, it's just spending the time on uh, whether it's an Android or, you know, Apple phone um, or, um, to show you how to turn those devices, you know, how to turn the features on and how to use them. So that training's been very successful. We, um, like I said, we do this training all over the U.S. We um, actually have expanded this training uh, where we have employee resource groups um, at AT&T that do this training on their own. So they might go to a, you know, community center for seniors and do the training, or they might um, be involved in one of the local advocacy groups um, in, their, in their neighborhood, and they can do this training. So it's kind of like a train the trainer as well we've done so that we can expand the program. That stuff is also available. All the information is available on our website and our accessibility page, um, and there's a, a lot of training and information there as well. Excellent. So what is uh, AT&T doing to make sure that their uh, websites are accessible for things like doing online tra transactions such as bill pays and ordering more products or services? So for, for the website and, e and even, you know, preloaded apps, we have um, those things, um, those changes, and when we're creating something new, obviously come through our group. So um, we... I have a group of, of experts, like I talked about, and they actually work with those program developers and teach them the accessibility features. And obviously, we're working really, really hard on templates um, so that people have common templates they can use that uh, that accessibility is you know, incorporated in that activity. We do scans of our, our website to... Um, you know, look at accessibility. Obviously, we listen to our clients when there's issues. So those those web products, there, there, like I said, there is a dedicated web team that focuses 100% of their time on ensuring that our website is accessible and making changes as needed. Um, one of the new <coughs> features in my group, we have been, we were created three years ago as a centralized um, organization. You know. AT&T has a long history of looking at accessibility. Obviously, um, the creation of the phone, as most people already know, was Alexander Bell creating a, a hearing device. So 
um, the phone was a result of trying to create an amplification for you know a hearing device. So we we've we've done accessibility a long time, but I, I will tell you with the creation of Cato back in um, late 2012, we really did understand that this can, um, can be very complex and um, it's such a large it does large issues and large you know demand that we definitely needed a centralized organization that was more trained um, that could help the business unit so there's somewhere where they can always go to. We've been handling a project by project basis where our solution engineers assigned to the project and work for that project group. Um, but what we're finding is um, there's so many projects and there's such a demand, even like you just mentioned, asked me about web, you know, like where we're making a change to the web, where we need a resource right away, right? We need someone to help us. We're going to make this change. It's an immediate change, but we need to understand, you know, a component or how to code it or some help. Uh, we've created a new group we're calling the Accessibility Center of Excellence that works within my group, and that's going to be more of a question-by-question question where someone can get immediate help and call in when they're working on a, like a quick project or something um, where the business unit does this on their own. They have experts and champions in their own group, but maybe it's something new they haven't quite faced, or maybe they just forgot how to code, or maybe, you know, whatever it is, maybe they don't do it very often. And, you know, so we, with this center of excellence, we have a landing page where we've created standards um, for our company on how to make products and services, including the web, accessible. Those standards are published, and those programmers can go to those standards anytime they'd like. And they're divided by the topics they would need to look for, whether it's, you know, it's, whether it's color, um, contrast, and other types of things on the web. But they're, the wiki pages are there. They can go get those standards. If they can't follow those standards or need help, then, again, with the Center of Excellence, um, they can reach out to one of our experts that will help them with that question. And it doesn't take away from our full-time solution engineers that handle projects by project where they actually work from the ideation stage of that project through the, um, the issuance of that project so that we can ensure on complex issues and others that we can consider the appropriate actions, um, you know, that are needed. Excellent. So is there uh, anything else you'd like to cover with uh, AT&T's uh, goal of making products and services more accessible? You know, accessibility is um, um, an evolving, um, you know, it's an evolving program for everyone. Uh, we're very excited um, to, you know, I'm excited to be the leader of the accessibility program. Like I said, it's a, I'm, all my group is very passionate about what we do. Um, you know, we, we've come a long way <laughs> in a couple of years, um, and I know there's still, um, you know, we still have work to do, and we're working on that. Our scope obviously has expanded. I'm sorry? No, it's okay. Keep going. Okay. I, I heard a little feedback here. I thought you had a question. So our scope has expanded. You know, we're, we've moved into Mexico, obviously, with our uh, cellular service as well as you know, Latin America, uh, Mexico, and other Latin America with our DirecTV products. So we're excited about the future. Um, I've got a, you know, like I said, a really good team of experts um, for accessibility, and we're, we, you know, we look forward to the future um, with great hope. Well, thank you for being on uh, ACB Radio, and thank you for being an Onyx sponsor of the 2016 
American Council of the Blind Conference and Convention. Here is the agenda for Thursday, July 7th. In the Nicollet Ballroom, beginning at 8 a.m., Entertainment, Bruce Cottrell, Piano, Brunsville, Minnesota. 8.30 a.m., Invocation, Sharon Strakowski, Worcester, Massachusetts. Pledge of Allegiance, 2016 DKM first-timers, Marja Byers, Salem, Oregon, and Greg Lindbergh, Palm Harbor, Florida. 8.35 a.m. ACB Business. ACB Sponsor Recognitions, Marjorie Beeman, Advertising and Sponsorship Coordinator, Austin, Texas. Constitution and Bylaws, John Huffman, Chair, Indianapolis, Indiana. Resolutions, Mark Reichert, Chair, Arlington, Virginia. Presiding Officer, Carla Rushable, ACB Treasurer, Louisville, Kentucky. 9.15 a.m. Meet the new President and CEO of the American Printing House for the Blind, Craig Meter. President and CEO, Louisville, Kentucky. 9.40 a.m., pedestrian safety developments and trends that you can't even imagine. Research and reality. Lucas Frank, Senior Consultant for Special Projects, The Seeing Eye, Morristown, New Jersey. 10.15 a.m., break. 10.30 a.m., report on the ACB walk and auction. Dan Spoon, ACB Board of Directors, Orlando, Florida. Dan Dillon, Hermitage, Tennessee, co-chairs ACB Resource Development Committee. Donna Brown, walk chair, Romney, West Virginia. And Leslie Spoon, chair ACB Auction Subcommittee, Orlando, Florida. 11 a.m., National Conference and Convention Report. Janet Dickelman, Chair, Convention Committee, St. Paul, Minnesota. 11.15 a.m., Treasurer's Report, Carla Rushable, Louisville, Kentucky. 11.25 a.m., ACBES Report, Reverend Michael Garrett, Chair, ACB Enterprises and Services, Missouri City, Texas. 11.35 a.m., Award Presentations and Update from the ACB Audio Description Project, Joel Schneider, Director, Audio Description Project, Tacoma Park, Maryland. Chris Gray, ADP Awards Chair, St. Louis, Missouri, and Dan Spoon, Chair, Audio Description Project Steering Committee, Orlando, Florida. 11.55 a.m. announcements, and that concludes the schedule for Thursday, July 7th. Good morning, everybody. It's Thursday, July 7th, 2016. We're live here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with the convention. It's, uh, you are now. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. There you are. There's Debbie Hazelden. Woo! Yay. Wow. It is quite a week. Mm. Got some good piano music. Do you know who that is, Larry? I think... The Cottrell person, guy? I think it's might be Timothy Jones. Hmm. Okay. I can't remember. Okay. I'll have to... I thought that the Cottrell people were coming back. Actually, it something. is Cottrell's. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. They Hope had so many. Hard to keep track coverage. of them. <laughs> good. Good morning. Happy Thursday. Happy day. Mm. It means it's almost Friday. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to bring up the house. We'll catch the pre-entertainment. And Kim's going to get things underway in less than two minutes.
Well, I guess they don't have the piano mic'd, but uh, oh well. It's 8.30 anyway, and Kim's going to get underway. I saw him maybe twice. Yeah, usually he's been good about that. That's unusual. everyone. Good morning. I first want to say thank you to Bruce Cottrell for his beautiful uh, piano entertainment this morning. And if I'm not mistaken, the beautiful voice of Father John Sheehan singing New York, New York. <laughs> All right, it's my pleasure to introduce to you a friend and a, a co-resident of the state of Massachusetts, my colleague, Sharon Strakowski from Worcester, Massachusetts, 
who will lead us in our invocation. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you for engaging with me in a couple of moments of stillness before we begin our day in earnest, which we all know will be very busy. Uh, I am a member of the Episcopal Church, and it has been a very nourishing and funky place to be (laughs) over the last many years. I'm very grateful to be a reader at my church and currently on the search committee for a new choir director. So church, like everywhere else, is always full of change and constancy at the same time. And I believe that's how our God is as well. So let's have a moment of prayer. O Spirit of life, O Spirit of God, be with us today. Surround us with your love, above us, below us, in front of us, behind us, and all around. And most of all, help us recognize your Spirit within us to guide us in love, in creative energy, in ways of being with others, in fellowship, and in breaking of bread together. And then, as we recognize your spirit, help us to be bearers of your spirit to all we meet today in the world, so that we can be your ambassadors of truth and peace and goodness and shalom. Amen. All right. If you would all please rise and join me and our two 2016 Durward K. McDaniel first-timers in the Pledge of Allegiance. They'll be led by Marja Byers from Salem, Oregon, and Greg Lindberg from Palm Harbor, Florida. Excuse me. I don't know where I am today. (laughs) Step forward. There you go. All right. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. All right. Um, Just a reminder, tomorrow's a big day here on the floor and you need to have a red dot on your badge to be a certified voter. So um, help your neighbors, help your fellow delegate members, check your dots, check your name card, make sure there's a red dot on it, you can feel it. And um, if you don't have a red dot, then you need to go to the registration office today because tomorrow will be too late. All right, thank you. It's my pleasure to recognize Marjorie Beeman for sponsorship announcements. Good morning, everyone. I want to make sure everybody's awake and ready to go. I'm going to read the uh, bronze sponsorships today, the $25 ones. And if I mispronounce your name, you have to forgive me. I'm from Texas. Uh, George Ashoidas, Linda Becker, Sally Benjamin, William Benjamin, Ann Brash, Marie Brains, Kathleen Brockman, Suzanne Howell, Eddie Huffman, John Huffman, Darlene Johnson, Tom Jones, Marilyn Kirshner, Donald Coors, Cindy Laban, Julie Lovins, Jane Lund, Lourdes Marcus, 
Barbara McDonald, Rich Morin, Marcia Moses, Ellen Nolan, McGill Palomar, Gilly Presley, Carrie Reagan, Alice Richard, Cheryl Rakoska, John Ross, Debbie Rozier, Linda Schultz, Ronald Schultz, Nicole Schultz Case, Joe Sorensen, Valerie Standard, Ellen Tickler, David Trott, Rhonda Trott, Richard Villa, Vicki Vogue, Joseph Wasserman, Renee Zielinski. Okay, those are the $25 ones. Give them a hand. Remember, it's never too late to donate because I want to name, call out your name tomorrow, my last time before the convention ends. Now I'll do the sponsors. Our double diamond sponsors of $25,000 is Google, Ground Jewel Sponsor, Vanda Pharmaceutical, ACB Banquet, and Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk. Give them a hand. Emerald sponsors, DeCue Systems, sponsor Guide Dog Services, and International Culture Exchange Day. J.P. Morgan Chase and Company, your day at the conference, July the 8th, 2016. Microsoft, conference registration. Sprint, conference volunteer services and afternoon ACB radio broadcast. Uber, Audiovisual Services, Verizon, Information Desk, and Decade of Dreams Auction. Give them a hand. <laughs> Ruby Sponsors, 10,000. Adobe Convention Program, and you'll hear from someone from Adobe shortly. Comcast, ACB Exhibit Hall. Facebook Interpreter Services Deaf Blind. Humanware, ACB Radio General Session Broadcast. Macro Degeneration Foundation, Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk. Regal Cinema, Kids Explorer Club, and the Memorial Walk. Give them a hand. Our next sponsors, 5,000. AT&T, ACB Cafe, Buell Fund Recreation Zone, Charter Communications, Performing Arts Showcase, National Association of Broadcasters, ACB Marketplace, National Industries for the Blind, Scholarship Winners Reception, and One General Session, VFO Freedom Scientific Optilec, Exhibit Hall Guide. Give them a hand. <laughs> Topaz Sponsors, 2,500. ACB Lions, Scholarship Winners Travel. Give them a hand. <laughs> Coral Sponsors, 2,000. Bomb USA, ACB Future Leaders, and Outstanding Blind Students. Lane Feingold of Law Office of Laney Feingold and Linda Dadarian and Megan Ryan of Goldstein, Borgen, Dadarian, and Ho. Audio Describe Film Night. 
Randolph Shepherd Vendors of America, scholarship winner dinner and luncheon. Give them a hand. <laughs> Pearl sponsors, 1,000. Caption Mac, ACB Cafe, July 6th. Discovery Technologies, ACB Cafe, July 5th. Hymns Incorporated, ACB Cafe, July 3rd. Lighthouse for the Blind, Seattle, High Tech Workshop. Library Users of America, LS, L, NLS Talking Book Narrator. Maxiade, ACB Cafe, July the 4th. Give them a hand. I will give you all a new total tomorrow, and you do not want to be left out. So I'll look forward to it. I'll turn the program over to our president. Thank you. Thank you, Marjorie. All right. We're going to hear from one of our sponsors now, um, someone who's new um, to this podium, but not new, necessarily new to accessibility. Um, it's a pleasure to introduce to you Jack Nikolai, and he is from Adobe. Hi, pleasure to meet you, Jack. I've heard well. about you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. So I recently uh, joined Adobe in their accessibility program. Um, I wanted to introduce myself and, and tell you just a little bit about uh, what we're doing. So I am an accessibility product manager for the Creative Cloud suite of software. Um, for those folks in the creative industry, you may be familiar with uh, products like Photoshop and Illustrator, InDesign, and 40-plus other products. Um, there are now two additional people on my team, also as product managers, one for what we refer to as the document cloud. So for those of you that are familiar with PDF documents... Um, we have now a, a product manager there to ensure that those products are accessible for you. We also have Amy Chen, who is a product manager for our marketing cloud. Primarily those people that are in the marketing and advertising industries will be f familiar with that product line. We also have my boss, uh, Matt May, who is our program manager. For those people who would like to, I, well, let, let me f start by saying t one of the reasons that I'm here today is, is hopefully to be able to make some personal connections with some of you here in this room so that we can ensure that the products that we're creating are products that are actually there for, for the people that, are, are, uh, that we work with and that are here today. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is Adobe has a portion of their website that speaks to how we support accessibility which is at, at adobe.com slash accessibility. And in the main navigation, there is a link to provide feedback. And I'm sure you all may have feedback about some of our products. And that feedback goes directly to my boss. So I invite all of you to visit, <laughs> visit our website and provide some feedback. So again, I just wanted to take a moment to introduce myself uh, to let uh, those folks in the room know that we are... Uh, committed to making our products accessible for everyone, and I would love to meet you. Um, I'm after the general session today. I'm going to be directly outside of this room. There is a, a table close to the the exits, um, the main exits, and I will be happy to chat with with any of you. I would love to meet you. So thank you. Thank you, Jack. 
and thank you for Adobe's commitment to accessibility. All right, we're going to conduct some business this morning. I am going to recognize our Constitution and Bylaws Chair, John Huffman, and we are hoping that we'll wrap up our Constitution and Bylaws work for this year this morning. John. Thank you, Madam President, and with a little cooperation, I believe we can do just that. Uh, we have previously re given first readings to four proposed amendments to the Constitution and bylaws. Uh, it is possible, if, if the body agrees, that we could do a quick, uh, an, kind of an expedited reread, where instead of reading in their entirety both the existing and proposed language, I simply read them and tell you what the substitutions would be and where they would occur. Yes. I like to know, for everybody's sake, I know the answer already, all of these amendments serve the same purpose. Is that correct? They simply remove the word session and replace meeting throughout the entire Constitution and bylaws? Well, in the places cited, yes. Yes. All right. The second question, a parliamentary inquiry from the parliamentarian. Is it possible, since he wants to expedite it, is it possible, since that's the only purpose, to avoid the entire reading and just simply do it on block? <laughs> what does she say? Right. So, so the ruling um, from the parliamentarian is that they, this, they need to have a second reading so that everybody on can hear everything. them. But, but we, we will indicate where the change happens in that reading. Oh. It won't take too long. It will shorten things. And yes, it is possible to adopt all four changes in one vote. Yes, and that's, that's how we will approach it then, if you're willing. All right. The first proposal is an amendment to the Constitution, Article 11, Amendments, and would replace the word uh, in the first, with session, with meeting. The language, the language reads, Article 11, Amendments. This Constitution and bylaws may be amended at any regular conference and convention of ACB, provided such proposed amendment has been presented in writing to the Constitution and Bylaws Committee before the close—excuse uh, me—before the close of the first day following the roll call session of the conference and convention. And here we would simply substitute roll call meeting. Second proposal would amend Bylaw 6, Committees, Section H, Conference and Convention Program Committee, um, the fifth sentence of that clause, by striking the word sessions at the end of the sentence. It currently reads Bylaw 6, Committees, uh, H, 
Conference and Convention Program Committee. And the sentence reads, the committee shall recommend to the president appropriate topics and speakers to be included as part of the general program conference, or excuse me, as part of the general conference and convention program sessions. And in this case, we simply drop the word sessions and follow the program with a period. Okay, the next one is a little longer, so I have to take a deeper breath. And the proposal is to amend bylaw 7, credentials, section B and C, by changing the word session wherever it appears to the word meaning, meeting. The language reads, bylaw 7, credentials, section B. If at the opening session, and we substitute meeting, of the annual conference and convention, an affiliate is unable to announce its official delegate, alternate delegates, in the order of precedence, and its representative who will serve on the nominating committee, it shall provide this information in writing to the credentials committee prior to any vote by the affiliate at the annual conference and convention. Subsection C. The credentials committee, during the second session, and we would substitute meeting, of each annual conference and convention, shall make a preliminary report which shall contain the identity of each affiliate organization's official delegate and alternate delegates in order of precedence, and the affiliate's representative who will serve on the nominating committee as determined by either the roll call of affiliates conducted at the first session, substitute meeting, or from the written submissions made to the credentials committee by each affiliate organization. We are more than halfway home, folks. <laughs> uh, Yeah, okay. I'm trying to make sure that I don't miss three. Oh, that was three you just did. That was... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm farther than I thought. <laughs> the parliamentarian advises me. Um, uh, the final proposal, proposal 16-4, would amend the th third sentence of bylaw six, committees, section D, Constitution and bylaws by replacing the word session with the word meeting. The language reads as follows Bylaw 6, committees, D, Constitution and bylaws, and the sentence to be amended reads as follows All proposed amendments to the Constitution and/or bylaws must be submitted in writing to the Constitution and bylaws committee on or before the first day following the day of the roll call session, substitute meeting, 
of the conference and convention. Madam President, the Constitution and Bylaws Committee recommends a due pass, and I so move. Motion's been made and seconded. Hearing no discussion, all those in favor of the amendments as presented to you say aye. aye. Opposed? Aye. The motion has been adopted. The amendments have been adopted. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you all. Thank you again to my committee. And since I have been advised that you're not nearly as fond of the sound as fond of the sound of my voice as I am. <laughs> you probably won't have to hear it anymore <laughs> this week. Thank you. Thank you, John, and thank you to your committee. All right, I'm going to recognize Mr. Reichert to present to us a resolution, or perhaps two. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? So I'm trying to gauge uh, what level of... Uh, awakeness you guys are at now. You've all had your coffee? You want to get, you want to get the blood pumping a little bit with something here? Okay, that's a little hesitant. All right. Anybody in this audience care about Braille? See, all you got to do is mention one or two words. People just light right up. Whereas for nearly 20 years, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA, has required that every student who is blind or visually impaired shall have instruction in and use of Braille unless the student's individualized education program, IEP team, determines after appropriate evaluation that instruction in and use of Braille is inappropriate for the student. And whereas this so-called Braille presumption in IDEA, though indispensable as the clearest statement in current education law supporting Braille instruction for students with visual, vision loss, has not as yet yielded national systemic increases in Braille literacy, the number of available teachers of students with visual impairments, or TVIs, prepared to teach Braille, or awareness among parents of students with vision loss of their children's right to learn and read Braille. And whereas it is imperative that the current Braille pr presumption in IDEA be preserved and, if possible, strengthened so that students with vision loss can truly be guaranteed a free and appropriate public education. And whereas a small cohort of respected but overzealous professionals and academics are seeking to promote the delivery of clinical low vision evaluations, instruction using large print and or the use of optical devices or other low vision related assistive technologies by advocating that the Braille presumption in IDEA be weakened, eliminated, and or commingled with low vision specific statutory requirements. And whereas such advocacy would, if successful, put students' right to Braille at significant risk and needlessly pit Braille instruction against low vision devices and instruction. And whereas notwithstanding this misguided strategy, it is vital that the needs of students with low vision be fully honored and that education funding and policy compel educational systems to meet these nationally neglected needs. 
And whereas the American Council of the Blind, ACB, has joined with more than 100 major national, regional, and community-based organizations of and for people who are deaf, hard of hearing, blind, visually impaired, or deafblind, to endorse the Alice Cogswell and Ann Sullivan Macy Act comprehensive special education legislation to fundamentally transform America's special education system and improve results for students with sensory disabilities, including those with additional, who may have additional disabilities. Uh, and whereas the Cogswell Macy Act once enacted, would preserve the current rail presumption in IDEA, but for the first time also provide formal federal statutory status and recognition for low vision services and devices in America's special education system. And whereas ACB has long affirmed that the current provisions of IDEA concerning instruction in and use of Braille must be held inviolate and, if possible, strengthened so that no blind or visually impaired student in America is denied their right to learn and to read Braille. Now, therefore, be it resolved. Therefore, be it resolved that this organization repudiates any effort to alter or modify IDEA's existing Braille provisions that would in any way, either actually or as may be perceived, impair IDEA's currently uncompromising approach uh, in the provision of Braille. And be it further resolved as an endorsing as an endorser of the Cogswell Macy Act and a lead proponent of its prompt enactment, ACB reaffirms our unwavering commitment to see low vision services and devices receive their due recognition in federal special education law so that all students who should benefit from such services and devices can finally receive them. Madam President, we recommend a due pass. Right. Uh, the motion's been made and seconded to adopt this resolution. Outstanding work committee. Are there any comments? Mr. Chair. Please identify yourself. Uh, this is Jim Manner from Watertown, Mass. Oh, okay. Uh, just a quick question for the, uh, for the good of the body and also for the people who are tweeting this. Can we have the number of each resolution before it is read, please? This is uh, 2016-03, if you all act on it. Thank you. Uh, any other discussion? I hear a point of order. Are you at a mic? Get a little closer to the mic and speak into it. Okay. All right. Madam Chair. Oh, Madam Chair, from, to save us a little bit of time here, can, can you speak a little? Okay. My name is Paul Hunt, Austin, Thank Texas. You. Thank you. Um, to save a little time here, unless there's an exception in ACB, um, I understand parliamentary procedure that you do not need seconds when a committee recommends an, an option. Technically, that's correct. I don't think it hurts anything to have them, and uh, it doesn't take any time. Okay. So, all right. Are there any other substantive comments or corrections? Hearing none... 
All those in favor of this resolution signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed? Excellent work. This is a strong resolution for Braille, and I'm very pleased to see it come from our committee. Madam President, may I ask for the record if you would determine that that was a unanimous vote? I do so declare that was a unanimous vote. Give yourselves a a round of applause, please. (laughs) I love this organization. You guys rock. You guys rock. All right. Uh, Let's see. Which one do you guys would you put up with the most at this point? Wow. Uh, (laughs) No, we ain't doing that one. No way, man. How about that? Nah, nah, you're not ready for that one yet. We got to kind of ease you into the... All right. Since we're on a Braille roll, let's, 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 let's try it. And uh, I'm, I'm absolutely certain this is going to be a unanimous vote, too. I'm crossing my fingers and eyes, actually, as I say that. <clears throat> Where, uh, let's see, what time do we have? Let's make sure we have enough time for this. I think we've got time. Whereas, both... If we... If we adopt, if you all act on it, it will be 201604. If there's nothing that we do, there won't be a number. If we act, it'll be 2004. Whereas both the National Federation of the Blind and the American Council of the Blind passed resolutions approving the adoption of UEB, told you, UEB, Unified English Braille, which which clearly indicated that the Nemeth Code would still be a part of the Braille Code in the United States. And whereas many states have indicated that they will continue to use Nemeth Code for all instruction in mathematics and science where it had been used before the adoption of UEB. And whereas at least 10 states have, de- have decided to use UEB for all mathematics instruction, and whereas the adoption of two approaches to the Braille codes uh, to be used with mathematics means that many students who move from one state to uh, from one state may find themselves significantly disadvantaged because the code they were using in their former home is not the one being used in the state to which they have relocated. Now, therefore, be it resolved that this organization express our deep concern over the division of the United States into two codes for mathematical teaching, and be it further resolved that this organization strongly urges every state to make make it clear in their policies and procedures that there will be provisions to protect access to mathematical instruction in the code to which the student is accustomed, even if that code is not the one in use in that state. And be it further resolved that at the, uh, whoops, at the very least, every state include provisions that allow exceptions to the general practice 
uh, to be written into the individualized education program, IEP, which is at the heart of what IDEA expects the IEP team and... Whoops, hold it, hold it. Yes, of what, of what the IET, IEP... Hold on. Program, let's see, hold it, hold it. Oh, don't go away now. Don't check your phones, put your little phones down. Written into the IEP. Here, why don't I read this again for you guys? So that people... Be it further resolved that at the very least... Every state include provisions that allow exceptions to the general practice to be written into the individuals with the individualized education program, IEP, which is at the heart of what IDEA expects. And be it further resolved that this organization strongly urges those entities involved in national testing to provide tests in both Nemeth and UEB to make certain that all students will have the ability to demonstrate their mathematical uh, competence uh, rather than their unfamiliarity with a particular code. And be it further resolved uh, that the Braille Authority of North America is hereby strongly uh, encouraged to monitor the effectiveness of both codes over the next five years uh, so that BANA may be able to make a, defin a definitive decision about which code appears to offer the most effective approach to teaching and learning mathematics. The committee recommends a do pass. All right. Motion's been made and seconded. Is there discussion? All right, we have speakers at microphones. Chris Gray. Lori Scharf. I'll recognize Chris Gray. And then the lady. Thank you very much, Madam Chairman. The American Council of the Blind has made clear in the past on several occasions that we believed that the appropriate mathematical code for the presentation Braille code for the presentation of math and science was in fact the Nemeth code. We even asked that our representative to Banna uh, express this to Banna when we realized that uh, there were chinks in the armor, that the Nemeth code really wasn't being appropriately or reasonably used in UEB in, in a U.S. context. And this resolution furthers this duplicity of, of, uh, of codes. I oppose it. Anyone who knows the value of Nemeth Code, anyone who believes that students are going to have to work more and more in the STEM fields if they will be successful as employed adults, uh, you know, Nemeth, Nemeth Code is what is the way to go. And uh, I, I totally oppose this resolution. There was a lady at the mic. Please identify yourself. Lori Scharf. Please go ahead. Um, I, in the section where it mentions national testing, is that specifically focused on things such as the SATs and similar testing, or are you talking about transcribers of tests 
in the country, throughout the country. Uh, Madam President, our intent was to have that reflect any high-stakes test. Okay, I was just clarifying. Further discussion? I would recognize Mr. Paul Edwards. I, uh, yes, I have. Um, Paul Edwards, speak into your mic again. Hello. There you go. See, it does work. <laughs> so this resolution really isn't about codes. This resolution is about protecting the rights of kids where state entities have found themselves in places where they've decided to do two different things. There are 10 states in this country that have already made a decision that they're not going to use the Nemeth Code. I, I am not sure that I'm any happier with their decision than Chris is. But the truth is that that's what they've decided. So we have 10 states where UEB is going to be used and only UEB is going to be used for teaching mathematics. We have some states that have taken the position that we recommend, which is that, okay, we're going to use X in Florida. It's the Nemeth Code. But if we have a kid who's coming in from another state, we're going to write into our regulations that when a student has already learned UEB for math, we're going to hopefully have teachers in our state who can teach it that way, and we're going to have kids, therefore, who are going to be able to do mathematics using the Braille code that they've learned from elsewhere. All this resolution seeks to do, really, is to protect the kids. I mean, frankly, there's a war going on, whether we like it or not. There's a war going on between two codes, but the bottom line is the folks who need not be shot down in that war are the children who are trying to learn math. There was a lady at a mic. Please identify yourself. Well, I don't think it's there. Please identify uh, yourself. Eugenia Farth from Dallas. Um, Madam President, I oppose this resolution because... Well, BANA and ACB and NFB is not the Congress and, the, and say this is the law, okay? There's actually three codes these days. I do proofreading for an organization that's not even using UEB on the text. They said, we're not ready and we're not going to do it. Um, UEB has been pretty abrupt, and it was supposed to be gradual. And, you know, I think we need to keep Nemeth Code, at least for quite a while. Now, Paul's right in that there is some states that have just decided they're going to switch to UEB. The problem is that all of the, the um, um, symbols are not even close to what we're used to. So I just don't think it can be enforced. Thank you. Is there any other discussion in yes. support of the resolution? Oh, I... In support of the oh, resolution? No. no. Um, I hear a gentleman. I, He's getting to a mic. No, I well to okay. speak in support of. Okay, I'm asking for any speakers in support. One more time. All right, I'll take I'll take a comment in support, and then I'll recognize the lady in opposition. Uh, good All right. Go ahead and speak. I, I'm over here. That's good. Yes. Thank you. Uh, this is Jay Doudna from Oklahoma. I think what Paul says is correct. We're forgetting one thing here. 
It's the students that we're considering. And, in fact, if um, the student moves to a state where their, as this resolution says, where they've learned UEB and they have adopted the Nemeth Code, all we're saying is that this state should be qualified, should be able to teach or be able to allow that student to use the uh, code that they learned in the state that they learned. Let's not vote, let's not get the issue here out of, out of focus. Let's say that we're talking about students here, not about the argument between whether UEB is good or whether Nemeth is good. We need to vote, vote yes on this issue. All right. I'll recognize the lady at the mic if she identifies herself. My name is Juliet Silvers from Minneapolis. Um, and I just think you have a five or a six-year-old kid. Why not? I mean, if you're teaching a person one thing, how many codes does someone have to learn? I, I don't understand that. One code, why can't we just have one code? UEB, it took forever to get this code going. Uh, I have nothing against Nemeth. I think it's wonderful. But there's a music code. There's a math code. There's this code. There's that code. Why can't we just have one standard code that would work across the board? Thank you. Thank you. Um, Are there any other people wishing to be recognized. Okay, speak into the mic. I am, there we go. Thank you. (laughs) This is Ron Brooks from Arizona. So um, I'm going to actually oppose this, um, and I I guess I want to take maybe a different direction. Um, I learned Braille as a ninth grader uh, under duress, and it was difficult, and I, I guess, but I did learn it. And, you know, we're talking about this is for the kids and all of that, and we have kids the fact is, it's easier to learn at a younger age. Um, you know, we've adopted, our country has adopted UEB. There were good reasons for it. We've gotten to this point. I think the longer we drag this transition out, um, the more difficult it will be. I think that at the end of the day, we're, you know, in 10 years, this is going to be an issue that's in the past. There were good reasons to adopt UEB. Um, I wonder if you have multiple codes, how textbook manufacturers are going to manage we end up splitting resources that are finite. Personally, I say rip the bandage off and move forward. I don't think this resolution does that. All right. All right. Is there anyone wishing to speak? Is it in support or opposition? Support. 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 All right. All right. Please identify yourself. Pat Tussing, Indiana. Go in ahead. My, in my senior year in high school, when I was taking the test, we were forced into what was called modern math, new math. And I had to, the rest of my life was determined on taking a college board in a subject that I was not prepared to take. Please note that this resolution instructs BANA to evaluate for five years. That is not cramming anything down anybody's throats. It's to investigate and to improve or change or whatever. It's got five years. So there's a lead time into this. That's why the five years is in the resolution. Please pass it. 
All right. Is there anyone wishing to speak to add new information to this discussion? Not to reiterate anything we've already heard. President. The question has been called for. Yes, called for, Madam President. It's Victor from New York City. Um, Madam President, it really doesn't matter because all the tech companies are changing their braille displays to UEB. So, you know, it really doesn't matter because everybody's changing their braille displays. Humanware, you know, go on and on. They're, they're all changing to UEB now. So, all right. The you know, question has been called for. That's so. Hearing no further discussion. discussion. The question has been called for. Discussion. All those in favor, say aye. Aye. All those opposed, say no. No. The motion is adopted. The resolution is adopted. It's. Thank you very much, everybody. All right. We, Mr. Reichert, thank you for waking us up yes. this morning. You betcha. Um, yeah, you betcha. Getting our juices flowing. So um, be ready for many more interesting resolutions tomorrow. And thank you to your committee. All right. It's now my pleasure to introduce to you the officer, the presiding officer of the day for Thursday. And that is my colleague on the board, Ms. Carla Rushevel, treasurer of the American Council of the Blind. Can you save that seat for Carla, Eric? Not your seat, the one Mark was in. I'm removing my seat. Oh, yes, okay. Keep coming. Then, if you wish, from now forward, you can sit in the second chair to the left so you'll be closer. Okay, all right, thank you. That was Mark's seat, but I kicked him out. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning, ACB. It is indeed a pleasure to be able to be the presiding officer of the day. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I also want to just begin the, this portion of the program by just saying that it is truly an honor to serve on the board and to work with Kim and others on the board uh, on issues that relate to ACB. And, um, you know, sometimes we agree and sometimes we don't. But at the end of the day, it's all about ACB. It's all about what is how we can help people who are blind and visually impaired, not only throughout the country, but throughout the world. And ACB is a great place to be. I also want to say hello to everyone out there listening on ACB radio. We are so glad you're listening. We are so glad you're listening, and we hope that we missed you this year, and we hope that next year you will be with us in Reno. (laughs) All right. Our first presentation this morning, our first speaker, is Dr. Kreb... Dr. Craig Metter, he is the new president of the American Printing House for the Blind. APH, on December 30, announced that Dr. Metter was its new president beginning January 1, 2016. 
He's a former teacher and educational leader for blind and visually impaired children. He served as APH's vice president of educational services and product development beginning in May of 2015. Um, He had, in his previous life, before coming to Louisville, Kentucky, had uh, served the Washington State School for the Blind for 24 years, um, including uh, serving as a teacher, uh, as its principal, and if judging from what he is doing at APH is any indication, he was a tremendous mover and shaker at the Washington State School for the Blind. He was, had not yet become president, but we knew that he was going to be president in November when the Kentucky Council of the Blind had its state convention. And he came to speak to our convention on uh, our Friday evening program. And it was really wonderful to uh, have this, this new person coming to Kentucky who was so engaged in what was happening with blind and visually impaired people all over the country. The most interesting thing and the most impressive thing, I think, was a little thing um, that night. You know how people come to your conventions and they give a talk, and then, especially if it's at a banquet or a meal, uh, they'll say soon after they're finished, well, you know, I really do, I have somewhere else I need to be. My wife wants me to show up at some event, so I really have to go. Well, that didn't happen that night. He stayed for the whole program, not only for the dinner, but through our program following that was celebrating our 50 golden years as a state affiliate of ACB. And I was really impressed by that because it said that he was not only interested in being there to talk to us, but was interested in all of us as people. I want us to welcome Craig Metter as the new president of the American Council of the Blind and welcome Dr. Metter to ACB. Oh, what did I say? What did I say? Oh, dear. Yeah, the printing. Let's, let's don't. No, let's don't replace Kim. Let's make him president of the printing. Oh, dear. Are you going to sit closer here? I'm going to get my stuff okay. down here. Great. Thank you, Carla. And uh, I declined the presidency of the ACB. I am not fit to hold such an office, and I I do not have the expertise or talent to manage all of you. Um, you And I mean that in 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 a very heartfelt way. You are wonderful people, but from those last discussions... um, uh, you are a very engaged group with some strong opinions, which is good. That, that, uh, uh, I think there's nothing worse than to be a group that is all consent and uh, no disagreement. I... It, it's nice to, to, to be in front of all of you and, and hear some concern and some dissent, but being presented very civilly and uh, respectfully, and uh, that 
you know, that's, that's a lesson for the, the rest of the world right now, given the current uh, state of things with upcoming elections. This, this is the way it used to be done. This is the way it still needs to be done. So it's, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity to be here as well. And uh, Carly, you did such a nice job. I think I could sit down because you, the, the talk was meet the president. Here I am. Thanks. Have a great day. But it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, this is my first uh, council. I've been to two state meetings before, but this is my first national. So this, is, this has been kind of fun. And uh, next year, I hope to be here for more of it. I got in yesterday just as you were finishing up your morning session, and then you were off to all your other meetings. And I had some time to meet with my team that were manning the booths here. And then I'm here today, and then... Um, then I'm gone tomorrow. It's just one of those, those things. It's like uh, some, sometimes that happens. You come in and you go. But being appointed to, as president was, uh, came kind of as a shock. Um, the nice thing was Tuck was able, uh, Tuck is, has been a kind of a monument in the field for a number of years. And so it, it was quite a privilege to have him stay on for about three months. And we did this tour of the country and meet heads of agencies, and, and which was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, you get to meet all the influential people, all the, the people who are making decisions at, uh, at different programs. And uh, so we would arrive, usually suited and booted and ready, and then he would lead off. And of course, he knew everybody, and he'd get engaged in conversations. And we arrived at one agency in Washington, D.C., and he just began right away talking to the, the administrative assistant behind the desk, and they hugged and exchanged pleasantries, and they laughed. And he said, uh, and this is our new president, Dr. Craig Metter. And she looked at me, and, and of course, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'm the new guy, I've got a new suit on, I'm looking, looking good, I'm in step. And the first question she asked me, she asked me two questions. First thing she said, where did they find you? I've never heard of you. <laughs> so I could hear the air escaping through my ears of my self-inflated balloon head. Um, very humbling. But it, it told me two things. And the first is, in this field or in any field, you, you don't inherit the relationships of your predecessors. Tuck worked very hard, 27 years, developing friendships, developing relationships, listening to different agencies, understanding issues, similar to the last issue that was discussed, uh, a great concern between UEB and Nemeth. From a, uh, now a businessman's perspective, I have some severe concerns about that. We have a fixed budget, you know, and... When we shell out, when we do one, UE, one geometry book in UEB and we turn around and do that same geometry book in Nemeth, that's double the hit on our agency, which means less resources to be spread out among students. And that's a challenge that we're facing right now. And we have that, uh, I guess as an uh, agency, we have that role of Switzerland right now. It's because uh, we're consumer-driven, is keeping the masses happy and... and uh, um, so it's, it's kind of a challenge. But it's, it's one of those things that getting back to this idea is we're going to have to, I will have to continue to work hard to develop relationships between all the agencies and being able to listen to both sides of the aisle and uh, provide folks with what they want. The other thing I learned from that, that question or that uh, was so pointedly asked is that, uh, you know, be proud of my story 
And uh, so my story, as, as Carla described already, is, is I got my start when I was a college student. I was actually selling men's suits, young married, way too young married, a man of 21 years of age selling men's suits to provide for my wife and I while I went to school full time. And a friend said, I've got a great job. It's working with kids. I was planning on going into education. And he said, uh, you work with kids for four hours, then you get two after they go to bed, you get two hours to do homework. I'm like, well, that's fantastic. So he brought me out to the Oregon School for the Blind and uh, immediately fell in love with the students. It was, it was just, at that time, I felt the greatest job in the world to work with young, these were young men with multiple disabilities. Um, and my job was basically to reinforce the education that was happening during, during the day, t- teaching daily life skills. Um, and it was a phenomenal job because you, you got to help another individual, but the amount of growth that I took away personally from that job, learning learning to be an effective educator, learning to care for others, learning that the world is bigger than your 21-year-old mind, what uh, was phenomenal. And so I did that for a while and later was handed an opportunity to go back and get my master's to become a teacher of students with visual impairment. Did that, went to work in Central Oregon, drove 500 miles a week, meeting the needs of kids and districts. Uh, and this was pre... Um, pre-megadot, throw that one out there, (laughs) on average doing about an hour to two each night on the old Perkins Brailler. I had three Braille students my first year, 12 low vision students, and about nine consult students that I saw once or twice a month. And so every night, I got really good with my Braille and my Nemeth. I just, uh, on the Perkins Brailler, and uh, staying ahead, just ahead of my students so they'd be ready for class the next day. And so I got to see that whole, when, when, uh, electronic embosser, when embossers came in, we started using embossers and learning megadots and then later, you know, the, the, all the platforms that followed that. And I did that for a long time and eventually returned back to Washington State, actually went to Washington State so I could have a classroom of students, taught math and science for a number of years to middle schoolers, which are probably, yeah, hey, I get a, there's a special place in heaven. Um, <laughs> for folks who teach middle schoolers, especially math and science. Um, and I, it was, uh, it was uh, under the tutelage of some great leadership, Dr. Blue Bigford and Dr. Dean Stengem, uh for many years there. And, um, you know, and like I said, uh, the thing I forgot to mention in all these jobs, I made a lot of mistakes. And later, I would have fired myself for a number of those mistakes. <laughs> But they saw something that uh, I didn't see, and, uh, and that was a, a, a promise of being something bigger than, than the teacher. And I was invited to move into administration, and I did that for, uh, as a vice pres- principal and then principal for 10 years. And uh, again, at the time, I thought that was the greatest job in the world. And I made my share of mistakes, but I also did a lot of growing, too. And then moved from there to uh, director of outreach and state vision consultant, which that was a phenomenal job in Washington State because basically you got to travel around the state, listen to families, listen to districts, and meet with teachers and help everybody realize that there is no perfect program, that students do deserve your very best and they deserve the best of, of that technology and, and uh, modern methods 
could provide them districts have responsibilities and parents need to support the teacher of the visually impaired that they have because there are so few of them out there so it was it uh got a chance to mend a lot of fences with folks and strengthen some relationships and uh and that was a fun job it's kind of like peacekeeper then i was invited to come to aph to be the vice president so I had worked, like I said, mentioned under Dr. Dean Stengem for 24 years. And for those of you who know Dean, you'll, you won't find a person with higher integrity. He is, uh, he just retired about a week ago um, after all his years of service to the field. But Dean was, to say he was a cautious man, far-reaching, incredible visionary, but cautious visionary. And um, there'd be times when I'm saying, Dean, if we just do this, we can, we can do this. And he'd be saying, well, okay, we can do that. But, uh, you know, it's like we're going to give ourselves this much margin for mistake. And so I, another person I'd been studying all those years was Tuck Tinsley. Tuck was just the antithesis of Dean. Now, I'll say this, Tuck, high integrity again. Once again, a man of high integrity. But, oh, my gosh, Tuck is a risk taker. Um, Tuck was not afraid to fail. Tuck was not afraid to, to uh, look the fool if it meant that it might advance programs and products for kids. And so I thought, I got to study under this guy. So when the position came open, I asked friends in the field, how long before Tuck retires? And they said, three years, three years. I said, great. So I took the position, or I applied for the position, was selected, became VP. And he goes, he comes into my office, and for those who know Tuck, I'm going to do my best Tuck here. He comes to my office, he goes, he goes, damn, boy, it's good to see you. And I said, oh, <laughs> good morning, Dr. Dr. Tinsley. And he says, I, I got to meet with you today at, 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 10, at noon. Today at noon, we got to have a meeting. So this is first day. I said, okay, that's, that's great. So I'm being shown around and introduced to people, and he comes into my office. 30 minutes later, he goes, he goes, he goes we're going to move that meeting up to 10 o'clock. I said, okay, Tuck, that's great. <laughs> So I go down the hall to introduce myself to a few of my staff. I come back. He goes, he goes oh, hell, I'm just going to tell you right now. I said, okay, Tuck. He goes, I'm retiring in six months. <laughs> and he goes, then he follows up with, would that have made a difference in you coming here? <laughs> so I, I had a, my answer was yes, there was, but there was a big expletive before the yes. And, uh, and I just thought, Tuck, I just gave up my life. I, I was the heir apparent to all the work that Dean Stengem had done for uh, 30 years in the state of Washington. I had, I was, my house was almost paid for. My whole family, extended family on both our sides is back in Washington. I came to the middle of nowhere. I... And I know it's not the middle of nowhere, but coming from Washington State to Louisville, Kentucky, it's 2,500 miles. We packed up everything, my wife and I and our dog, and I just thought, oh my gosh, this can't be happening. And it's business, it's not education. So whoever the next president was coming in had, their full, had the right to remove all the executive officers and bring in their own executive officers. And I'm like, so I got home that day, um, called my wife, who was still in... And we had just sold our house like the, uh, like the day before. And she goes, should we try to cancel? Are you coming back home? Should you try to cancel this? I said, no, let's just ride this out. Let's, let's see what will happen. Um, 
And then six months later, uh, I was selected. I, I won't go into all the details because that was an arduous affair. But six months later, uh, they they selected me as president. So uh, that was a well. I didn't do that for well. I'll take that applause. Thank you. You take applause when you can get it. I guess. But um, so APH. That's where APH found me. And uh, I have to say, after six months of being president, it's the best job I've ever had. And I get ready for some mistakes. But people are saying, well, what's going on at APH? I came in at an incredibly fortuitous time. Um, how many saw the Orbit Reader? All right. This is what I mean. Could you imagine coming in and my first act, one of my first big acts as president was at CSUN, uh, the technology conference in, in March, and being able to say, look what we did, very APH. And it's, you know, it's, um, but not just APH, it's this 11-member consortia that work together. But that was so cool because this is what's going on at APH right now, is this idea of partnerships, we're way past the day when anyone can go it alone. You just can't. The world is evolving too fast. Technology is changing too quickly. And we have brilliant people at APH, but we're not that brilliant. Um, and I, I mean that modestly and humbly. To, to think that we can be, do it all and be it all and make it all happen is foolishness. And that's not something new that APH just discovered. They've known that for a long time. So this 11-member consortia, people coming across from different parts of the world to say, let's disrupt the process. Let's throw a wrench in the proverbial system, and let's bring the cost of refreshable Braille displays to an unheard-of price. Do you... I'm sure you all realize that currently there's basically one supplier of those Braille cells, a company out of Japan, and they set the price. This is why, I mean, it's, no one gets into this business to get rich. I mean, margins are very small, and there's a reason why almost every uh, device is priced about the same, if it's 20 cell or 40 cell, if it's a complete note-taker or just a... Uh, a display. So working with Orbit Technology, they had an idea for a new Braille cell, um, probably a fifth the cost of a single of the, the other type of cell, which drives prices down considerably. The irony of all this is the, the plan for this device was to, to get it to students in third world countries that didn't have access to hard copy Braille. That was the original focus of this. And through this, a, uh, the unexpected market turn, when people found out that we were going to do this, and people found out that it was now in production, and we should have those things up for sale worldwide uh, this fall, late this fall, hopefully uh, earlier than later, but I, by uh, you know, late October, November, those things will be available for sale. Our, our original goal was not the United States or Canada or England. It was uh, Honduras. Uh, Northern Africa, India. And that's a market that hasn't come to fruition yet because we haven't put the infrastructures in. But to see that kind of response is driving us in a lot of our thought process of, okay, if we did this with a 20-cell small reader that's pretty inexpensive and very durable, what else can be done with that technology? Where else can we make a mark?
So this, this is, is kind of the challenge, and this is kind of where we're going at APH. And to sum it all up, it's change. Um, APH has been a very stable agency for about 150 years. We've had some ups and downs, just like every agency, but for the most part. Um, so when I, it was like Tuck handing me the keys to a brand-new Mercedes and basically saying, just don't put this thing into a tree. Um, <laughs> But Tuck didn't say that. He, did, he, he said, you know, take this thing off road and see what it can do. Um, so we, we've started about the process of change. We're const- currently right now just going through a long, it's going to be a year-long process. We're about fourth of the way through it of really examining what it is we do, what has worked well, what hasn't worked well. We've examined all our products over the last 10 years. What sold, what didn't? Why didn't they? Why did the ones that sell, sell? What was the, you know, the customer feedback? How much support? And we're finding out a lot of things about ourselves. Is um, Sometimes we had great intention but, uh, and just carried out some stuff, and sometimes we did things kind of haphazardly and were just lucky. Um, so we're, we're trying to get that process underway. So we're looking at that change piece. We're changing a lot of our production things, trying to make things cheaper and faster. That's the thing that always drives me nuts is the cost of products. The cost of products, regardless if you're buying them from us or somebody else, but why does it have to be so expensive? Um, I've got two economic answers, and I don't agree with either one of them, but one is you're dealing with a low number, uh, low production runs, um, and because it's such specialized stuff, it takes, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's things that you sometimes have to be done by a very skilled workforce in small numbers. And so you're doing that mostly stateside, which is the way to do it, but it, it costs more. So, but we're looking at ways of how can we drive price down? What can we do as an agency to lower the prices on our products? We need to do that. We're also examining our, uh, our production processes. The last big shift in production uh, happened about 20 years ago when they had another VP come in at that time from General Electric, and he updated all APH's production. We hired a new VP this past year who came in from Toyota, and oh my gosh, the, you, you want to talk about what has changed in 20 years, how things are produced. And so we are going through this whole uh, renovation, reformation in production with new equipment being purchased and new practices and new processes. And that should, in end, because we're in essence uh, uh, doing some value-added engineering, should drive some of our prices down as well. Communication practices. We, I, and I, I told, tell people this at APH all the time, you, you, we do an awful job of telling people what, what it is we're doing. Um, and, and I mean that in the most, I sound like a real negative dictator, don't I? Um, I this, is, this is the way I describe APH. If you are a, cons- a, a long-time user of APH products, if you have been around APH or from the field, it's, it's like going to Grandpa's woodshed. It's like, hey, Grandpa, do you got a, uh, you know, a two-by-twelve piece of oak laying around? Well, let me check. Let's open up the garage door and go in there and dig through the pile, see if we can find it. We don't organize that well. So we are going through a whole process right now of, of redoing our whole digital presence. We have, the APH website has its, when we get it organized, right now it has more information 
than any other website that exists out there, both for not only product, but for service, for know-how, for research, all these connection pieces. But the problem is, is we've shoved it all into a single box and said, good luck finding it. So we are currently vetting a number of different companies that are going to help, in, help come in and clean up our, our, uh, our digital presence, which hopefully within one year you will see. I mean, I'm hoping it only takes a year. It's a lot of work. Um, but that it will be a very user-friendly site. You'll be able to come in, find what you need quickly. Um, and and that's, that's kind of our focus there. Development of products, I talked about that, decreasing the time. Right now it takes us about three and a half years to four years to get a product from idea to for sale. I would like to cut that in, in half, which has a lot of my staff freaking out. I don't know if that's doable or not. I'm not from the world of production or business, but I just remember as being a TVI and saying, hearing about a product and saying, okay, when's it going to be available? Soon, soon, soon. Which is frustrating. It's frustrating when you think they may have something that's really going to solve an issue for one of your students. So we're, we're working on that. We talked about partnerships. Orbit is a great example of that. And all the people who came together for the Orbit Reader, we partnered with Freedom Scientific this year. The other thing we're looking for is all those mom and pop agencies. And I, I don't mean that they're actually run by an old man and an old woman. They may be. <laughs> But they're basically small agencies that have a very small footprint that are struggling to get their product out there. APH represents kind of the superhighway of products for people who do things for uh, visually impaired. And, and we've been very selective as who, to who we let on that highway. Sometimes that's through quota agreements. But we're looking at redesigning that process. We can't redesign quota. That's a federal act. Um, but what we can do is we can get people exposure. There's some great products out there. A lot, I saw one the other day, and it just blew one of our current products away. And I was just, it's a new product coming on the market, a young upstart company out of Vermont. I, I just thought it was phenomenal. And I sat down with their engineers and, and just, um, you know, I I'm, I'm want them to be successful. They got a better product than we have. Um, and it's, it's basically, a, it's very similar to our draftsman. And I think it's a better product. I think it's a higher quality, easier to use for students. And I'm, I'm mad at us that we didn't think about that three, four years ago. Um, but at the same time, I think it's a better product for kids. So how do I get them airtime? How do I get them exposure so that people can see this product and they will d direct their sales towards that product rather than the APH product. Those, those are the things we're looking at, is how to partner, how to give people voice, how to give people an opportunity to say, I've got a good idea that might benefit uh, folks. So we're looking at that type of thing. How am I doing on time here? I don't want to talk forever. I'm, about out, I'm out of time. My goodness, I've got to stop here. The other thing we're looking at is services and focuses. The world has changed. The world has changed, and, and I'm not telling you something that you don't know. Um, so much is more about access than it is about product. Um, services, creating files that, that you don't need to buy, files that you can have for free that you can print off on your own printer or your own 3D printer or your own whatever device it needs. Getting textbooks out to agencies so that they can print just the sections they need as opposed to buying the entire book from us. Those are all things we're, we're, we're looking at. Um, we're expanding our focus. We've been a birth through 12 primary focused agency, but we realize the whole adult market is something that we have missed and missed badly. So we need ideas. What is it that you need to make your life better? 
Maybe it's the orbit reader. Maybe it's something completely different. We're not going to reinvent the wheel, but once again, if we can find that company out there that is currently doing that, we, we can direct folks to, to that company or at least get them access to that. Uh, wrapping up here. So I'll get out of your hair and let you get on to the more important stuff. Um, some of the things we're looking at real quickly. We talked about the share community um, and, and bringing people into. We're looking at 3D the whole world of 3D. 3D has just come out of what they call the hype cycle. Every product goes through an introductory phase where people get excited, then there's a big hype cycle. And after you come off the hype cycle is when development happens. Um, so depending on who you follow in research, people said that PCs, laptops, home desktops, didn't become commonplace until there were over 10 million units basically a unit in everyone's home, at which time the, the great technology revolution happened. And so that's kind of the, the same idea with 3D printing. Until most homes have a 3D printer in there, 3D printing will really never gain the, the foothold that it possibly can. But then I was reading an article today which talked about chemical printing. So the 3D printing just may be that half step because technology is starting to look at chem basically creating bonds with material starting in a liquid form and then, in essence, bypassing the printing process altogether. But it, it, it's real science fiction-y stuff. They're doing some beginning uh, uh, work on it right now, but, so that may bypass uh, 3D printing. We're also looking at the idea of haptic interface. Um, we envision a day when you can download a file from, from APH or from any, from uh, Braille Press or where, whomever, and embedded in all those files will be, uh, a, in essence, a, a, a digital tactile display, and your access to that digital tactile display may be something about the size of a tablet that actually projects that tactile display into a 3D model so that, it, in essence, it would create that feelable, touchable hologram. And there's some beginning research being done on that uh, at some very higher levels, way above my, uh, not at APH, uh, at other places, uh, a lot of space propulsion places and a lot of, surprise, uh, military uh, interfaces, that type of thing. But that day is coming as well. What that's going to look like, we're not sure. But So we're trying to prep and set for the future on that and be thinking on those. And I'm going to close by, by saying, you know, this idea of partnering and creating disruption to our current marketplace. In two weeks at AER International, and I apologize that we didn't have it ready to show here at this conference today, but we're going to be unveiling two new products which I'm hoping will move the needle, and I can't go into great detail because that would ruin the surprise. But one will, one will involve uh, Braille transcription. We believe we've created a, a product. We're just in the beta stage right now, and uh, hopefully we'll, it'll, within a year we'll be ready to release it, uh, but we're going to be looking for beta testers that basically would increase transcription uh, ability by anywhere from a half to two-thirds. So you would be able to do at least twice as much work in the current time that, you, that it takes you to use current transcription software. Uh, that's going to be unveiled then. And then the other one is we are getting ready to unveil, and there's a lot of companies that have been working on this, but no one has put together a working prototype. We will have a working prototype of a tactile graphics display. 
um, and that's going to be unveiled at that time. So I've let the cat out of the bag. Uh, I see Vinkatesh over in the corner. Vinkatesh, uh, Shuri, right back here. You can raise your hand, Vinkatesh. This is the man behind, this is the brains behind uh, the orbit reader and the, uh, our tactile graphics display. And this is, this is where we're going as APH, is we are looking for this kind of brilliance that exists in the world saying, partner with us to make the world a better place for our, our customers and our family. So um, that's all I'm going to say about, about that. And uh, I, once again, appreciate the opportunity to come and talk today. I'm going to get off the stage so you can get on to more important things. But thank you again. Thank you so much, Dr. Metter. I want to tell you that um, about a month ago, six weeks ago, um, our local chapter, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind, um, we have an activity every week called a roundabout. And uh, at the May 20 roundabout, it's on Fridays, at the May 20 roundabout, Larry Scootcon from APH came, and he brought the prototype of that cute little orbit reader. And um, uh, Dr. Metter, I would hope you would take pre-orders on that little gadget. <laughs> Larry could have had pre-orders for 15 of them that night in that room. Everybody wanted one. It was wonderful. There were about 35 people there, and people were saying, this will change my life. I can afford this. So we're really looking forward to it. And we really appreciate all the work that's being done at the American Printing House for the Blind. Thank you. Our I, next speaker. Wait, wait a second. I, I just oh, want to say me. something, if I may. This is Catherine Golding, and um, I was a team teacher with Craig Metter at the Washington State School for the Blind when he was a little young thing of 29. And um, we did a lot of team teaching together. And if you don't mind, Craig, I'm just going to tell a story on you. I've got lots of them, but this one I can tell. We uh, had a middle school group of kids, and we were teaching them American history. And we had the brilliant idea of teaching them to make a canoe out of a log. And that meant burning the middle of the log out. And um, then uh, using tools to carve this canoe. Now, our classroom was in a U-shaped courtyard uh, on the north side of the building. And we started this, oh, the fire, I think, probably, what, 10 feet away from the door? Was, we, I think it was about that. And so we started this fire. <laughs> the, the neighborhood saw this fire going on and called the fire department. I didn't recognize the, I did not recognize the, uh, the uh, superintendent, who was Dean Stengem, came running over and said, what the hell are you guys doing? I didn't want to roll her out of order. I would have anything else. And uh, Craig, uh, in, in his inimitable fashion, just said, well, we're learning. <laughs> so so I, wanted, I just want to say that he is... Uh, probably one of the most humble people 
uh, that I've ever met in terms of what his own talents and perceptions are. He later became my supervisor when I was an itinerant, and he was an excellent supervisor. He is, this honor for him is well-deserved, and it is my privilege to have worked very closely with him. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Before we move on to our next speaker, I'm going to recognize Janet Dickelman for an announcement. Good morning, everyone. This is Minnesota, right? We knew that having five weather-dependent activities in Minnesota could be a little risky. Well, we were able to get one in, the beach party. Unfortunately, tonight we're going to have to cancel the walk in the park and the um, (laughs) concert because we are expecting big thunderstorms starting at 4 p.m. this afternoon. So we just needed to cancel that. I'm so sorry. You can go to registration and get your refund. And you can buy tickets for ACBS Comedy Night and the ACB movie. I know it's not quite the same, but um, I'm sorry. And I I have a lot of control over a lot of things, but not the weather. Thank you. I'll be back later. (laughs) Thank you, Janet. Actually, um, if if you need something to do with that refund money, the mini mall is in the back left corner of this room. Yes, and there are lots of things on sale today, so it's back there behind Georgia, but don't make too much noise. Betsy Grinovich will get you. (laughs) All right, and thanks to the people back there in the mini mall. Um, It'll be really available during the break. I'll tell you more about that later. Our next speaker is Lucas Frank from The Seeing Eye. Lucas has... Lucas has worked for the Seeing Eye for 38 years. His current title is Senior Special Projects Consultant. He is also a certified orientation and mobility specialist, having received his master's degree in O&M at Western Michigan University in 1987. He actively trained guide dogs and teams for over 15 years. He then became an aftercare specialist, traveling throughout the United States and Canada, we want to be careful here and say troubleshooting dog guide teams. We don't want to leave off that trouble in the beginning. (laughs) The the Seeing Eye has over 1,700 active teams and graduates more than 250 teams per year. As a result of this exposure, he became interested in the impact of traffic engineering and intersection design on the independence of blind and visually impaired people. He is a member and past chair of the Environmental Access Committee of AER's Orientation and Mobility Division. He has worked with the National Committee on Uniform Traffic Control Devices and helped to develop the language on accessible pedestrian signals in the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices. He served on the Public Rights of Way Access Advisory Committee. He is a member of two NCHRP research oversight panels related to visual impairment. Lucas Frank is truly an icon in 
the world of O&M today, and we welcome him to address the American Council of the Blind. Welcome, Lucas. Thank you so much. I don't, I don't recognize myself in that introduction at all. It doesn't feel right. Um, I just want to say that I, I troubleshot a lot of uh, guide dog teams. I have never shot a dog. <laughs> I never intend to. Um, it's a different job. Um, the, uh, it's an honor to be here to, speaking to this group who have done so much to improve and continue to provide access to the streets uh, of the United States and Canada. This is a group that advocates and advocates well. I'm honored to be flanked on my left by Eric Bridges, who participated with me in some of those. Anybody who has insomnia, I would recommend going to a traffic engineering meeting. (laughs) as a cure. <laughs> so Eric has, has slept with me through. Let me, let me deal with that question. <laughs> we, have, we have snoozed through many, many meetings <laughs> together. Eric, I, I owe you one. <laughs> All right. Um, as I said, uh, or as was said about me, I, I became interested in, in uh, access because in my capacity, traveling around the country, working with people around the country, uh, I continued to encounter, and this is mid-90s, uh, intersections that were troublesome for, uh, and, and difficult to manage for very, very capable people. Uh, who were having trouble figuring out when to cross the street, and I couldn't figure out why they couldn't figure it out, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And at that time, uh, <clears throat> it became clear that what was going on was, was computerization of intersection control uh, in a way that made intersection timings unpredictable to people who are blind or visually impaired. And <clears throat> so in partnership uh, with, uh, with ACB, in particular at that time Julie Carroll, uh, we worked very hard to, with uh, the federal organizations <clears throat> responsible for intersection design to create standards and language that allowed for accessibility to those intersection timings. And uh, all that work over the course of, uh, oh gosh, nearly 20 years resulted in language which has allowed for the installation more and more widely uh, of accessible pedestrian signals uh, at intersections around the country. More importantly, it's not just the installation of accessible pedestrian signals, but accessible pedestrian signals that are more and more standardized in such a way that a pedestrian arriving at an unfamiliar intersection has an increasingly intuitive experience of how to get across that particular intersection. And that's huge, because having predictability makes it easy to travel. I mean, as a driver, when I get to an intersection, I don't have to puzzle out, well, 
let me see, does red mean go here or green? Or is there another color entirely that I should be looking for? Uh, it's, it's predictability that makes that type of thing, uh, as, a, as, a, as a sighted driver or as a pedestrian, that makes access to the streets safe, convenient, and relatively stress-free. Um, but I, I want to point something out that is often missed in this, in this mix. And that is that the independence of, the, of, of people who are blind or visually impaired in the United States and in Canada is to a surprising extent due to traffic engineering. Let me repeat that. The independence of people who are blind and visually impaired in the United States and the fact that mobility on a large scale really is an American product and concept is to an amazing extent due to civil and traffic engineering. Because the continent, this continent and the, and the civilization, such as it is, that exists on it, <laughs> is due to design. And the design was not done to make life easier for people who are blind or visually impaired. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> but, the, but in fact, the ingenuity and creativity and courage of people who are blind or visually impaired allowed them to exploit the designs and get by. Red light, you know, intersections controlled by traffic lights were not designed for people who are blind or visually impaired. But the fact that traffic had a predictable panel, pa uh, pattern was exploitable by people who are blind or visually impaired and exploit it, you did. But as that became more difficult because of computerization, your access began to deteriorate. And it became more difficult and challenging to cross streets. And now, because of the regulation that has been written uh, with your support and help, it's becoming once again more easy to cross, more uh, safer and more easy to cross intersections that are controlled by traffic signals because you have access to that signal timing through accessible pedestrian signals. The... But that, you know, back in 1995, I thought that was the beginning and end of it, but it's not. There is, the Chinese have a saying, may you live in interesting times. And that is sometimes believed to be a blessing, but often determined to be a curse. I think that overall, we are at a time of threat in terms of access to, to streets, and intersections because of development and change in several areas. One is intersection design itself. In particular, the arrival of roundabouts. Well, <laughs> let me just be clear that when I talk about roundabouts, I'm not talking about rotaries as exist in Massachusetts, which are a curse unto themselves. <laughs> uh, nobody on, on, on the earth can deal with that issue. I think that's beyond help. But roundabouts, <laughs> roundabouts are different. They're ubiquitous. They're coming in large numbers. The, uh, 
the blindness community at large has sort of held them at bay because the ADA says you have to provide access. Uh, we were able to say, wait a minute, how do you access roundabouts? That sort of threw a monkey wrench in the vast insula- rapid installation of roundabouts as they tried to figure out the answer to that. There have been uh, research projects going on for the last, oh, I guess, six or seven years on how to provide access to uh, roundabouts for people who are blind or visually impaired. But let me tell you, you're not going to stop roundabouts coming. You're just not. And the, the reason for that is quite simple. Uh, first of all, you've got to follow the money. They're much cheaper to, to build in than, than, uh, uh, than signalized intersections. Number two, and probably more importantly, believe it or not, they're safe for drivers. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the, the number of, uh, of fatalities... At an, if you take an intersection and move it from a standard four-way plus sign-shaped intersection to a roundabout, the number of fatalities that, at that intersection uh, and injuries is going to drop. And, and, and that's a great boon. Uh, the problem is then providing access to that intersection. There are several pieces to that. One is wayfinding. If you're expecting to come to a corner and there ain't no corner there, how do you know where to go? <laughs> All right. And number two, how do you know when to cross the street? And there are several things that can be done in, the, in regard to the first. One is providing landscaping. So in other words, if you come to, if it's all cement, you don't know where to start. If there's a grass line that prevents you from crossing or a hedge or a small fence or something like that incorporated into the, into the design that gets you to a crossing point, that helps. There are two crossings at a roundabout. You're crossing the intake and the outlet of the roundabout. So a car comes into the circle, so that's one point where you might need to cross, and then at a certain point a car is going to come off that circle, and that's another point. It seems that, through research, the intake side of a roundabout is relatively safe. The outlet side is much more dangerous because cars are accelerating to come off the circle. So a lot of research has been done to try to determine how you can slow those guys down, how you can let people know that cars are yielding uh, and that it's a good time to cross. It's not an easy problem to solve. Uh, there are, and, but first, fortunately, roundabouts come in many flavors. The first flavor is a single lane roundabout. Kim, keep me on time. Um, are single-lane roundabouts, and they do not seem to be terribly, terribly problematic. Multi-lane roundabouts, much more so. Uh, One of the solutions that uh, National Highway Transportation Research Project uh, 3-78 came up with is tabling intersections. So in other words, if you have sort of a speed bump, but one that a crosswalk is installed on top of, it encourages cars to slow down rather than accelerate out of the intersection. and then you can start to hear them. The problem you run into with multi-lane roundabouts is the second lane. The first car may stop, the car coming around beyond that one may not see you and may not stop. Um, the, and, and so there are certain risks there, and I would certainly encourage caution. The, uh, another solution is what are called rapid flash, rect- rectangular rapid flashing beacons, which are push-button equipped devices that you push the button and a rapid a light starts flashing, indicating that a pedestrian is there. They seem to have a, a positive impact on, uh, on, on yielding behavior by vehicles, allowing people to get across the street. 
the most sophisticated, most expensive, and therefore least likely to be installed option are what are called hawk signals. Hawk signals are traffic lights that provide uh, a walk indication and a red light for traffic. They seem to be very effective. They're quite expensive. They're not universally uh, effective because drivers at roundabouts are, have a, a complex task of coming around a turn. They don't have good viewing angles of a hawk signal sometimes, and there are some problems with compliance. Nevertheless, I think we're well on the way in creating a worldwide standard uh, leading towards accessibility uh, at, at roundabouts, again, through the support and advocacy of groups <coughs> of this group and others, because the concern about losing access to the built environment is huge. It means an awful lot. But again, that's not the last of it. Of course, you may, have, you may have heard, let me rephrase that. You may not have heard about quiet cars. Uh, the, yeah, it's an issue. It's a big, big issue. We are helped at the moment by the fact that gas prices are falling so that people are saying, I don't want an electric car, I want a regular internal combustion engine car. Uh, there's a, quite a bit going on in terms of, of, of research. Uh, there was a talk earlier yesterday on, on quiet cars. Were many of you people in the room to hear that talk? Okay. So you know a lot. Uh, the cars are, are going to be required, to electric cars and hybrids, to have some sound. But my understanding is, and I'm not sure what the gentleman who spoke yesterday said, that this process is going more slowly than I think any of us hoped. Is that correct? Is that what you got yesterday? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's a problem. It's coming, but it's coming more. We, I, we had certainly hoped, uh, certainly in the Environmental Access Committee, we raised, we raised this around the year 2000 as a coming threat. So they certainly had no, they have no excuse for not having done more between now and then. Uh, and I wish they would get on with it and come up with a standard. The... Uh, uh, the, the language, there are several components of this that need to be in place. One, there needs to be a sound that alerts the pedestrian that there is a car present. It is not sufficient, in my view, to have a notification that their car is moving. If you don't know there are cars idling, there's a very significant component of your ability to judge the crossing of an intersection that just disappears. In terms of the practices that are currently being, being followed by, uh, by companies like Nissan, the Nissan LEAF, for example, does have a low-speed uh, uh, low sound that it comes with it, that sort of Star Trek-y noise that they have. But if it disappears when it stops, again, you've lost a significant component of, uh, component of the ability to cross at an intersection. So I think that, that, that that's absolutely key. Um, there also needs to be the ability, and so a lot of research is being done on this at Western Michigan University by uh, Rob Wall Emerson, Day Kim, Day Kim, and uh, ex, uh, Janet Barlow, my dear, dear friend who had hoped to be here. She deserves every bit of that. Um, uh, on, on, on orientation, you need to know where the car is coming from. It's nice to know there's a car there, but by gosh, you need to be really helpful to know where the heck it's coming from. At the same time, you've got, to, you've got to do it in such a way that it doesn't drive the rest, everybody crazy, including us. You know, it's got to be a sound that is acceptable and, and does all of the above. 
and it has to be standardized. It doesn't do us a great deal, a great deal of, of, of good to know that you're about to be hit by a Porsche as opposed to a Mercury. <laughs> we just need, you know, it's, I mean, you might prefer to be hit by the Porsche. I, I probably would, but the, uh, it's, a, it's a higher price spread, price spread, and the lawsuit might get you more. But, the, the, uh, uh, but I think that, you know, standardization is key. We don't really care that much about that. We need to know there's a car there, period. Not have to interpret whether it's a, 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 a what brand it is or whether it's a, uh, an escort or a <laughs> something else. Um, so I think that's, that those things, are, those things are absolutely key, and they need to get on with this. this really, you know, we're, we're, we're in a period where, where electric car sales are dropping, but they're going, to, they're going to pop back up again as soon as gas prices do. Unfortunately, roundabouts were not the beginning and the end of intersection design changes. There's a lot going on there. Uh, there are some very, very interesting and challenging designs going on. Uh, and, and we need to be sure that like the, what's called the diverging diamond, where traffic actually ends up coming from the wrong side of the... You know, we're used to traffic coming, generally speaking, from the left. This, this, this is not always going to be true, and it's going to be difficult to provide access at that type of design. I particularly am in favor of street treatments that make cars, force cars to make noise, uh, and, and some research has been done on that. Uh, and then there's the joy of autonomous vehicles. As I said, may we live in interesting times. Who could have imagined when we were working on accessible signals that we'd be talking about self-driving cars just a few years later? It's just amazing. I was not encouraged to hear about the accident a few days ago where the driver of his Tesla, his, his self-driving Tesla, confused the side of a, a turning semi with the, the horizon. That wasn't particularly encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of pedestrian detection. But I think that in the short, you know, there's a lot of debate going on about how, where these things will, be, will first be uh, seen. I, my own belief is that they'll be first be seen on freeways and truck convoys, uh, but, and, and that it will only gradually evolve to, uh, to street level, but I could be wrong. My engineering degree is not one that I have. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately. So, but I, I do know, having gone to a lot of traffic engineering conferences, that this stuff is real. It's on the horizon. It's coming. Uh, and we're seeing change. And uh, there is a tremendous interest in the engineering community on how to deal with this. Uh, you see gr groups forming all over the place trying to figure out how the, how the traffic engineering and road design community is going to deal with autonomous vehicles. So this is, this is a huge change coming down the horizon. It, I think that ultimately autonomous vehicles are going to be a great boon to all of us and particularly to this community because that's obviously coming. Uh, but I think between now and then there's going to be a very difficult period where uh, there's a lot of change going on and, and I think we just need to stay abreast of it as a community. I'd like to point out at, in conclusion one model group and you may have heard of and there may have been discussion of an organization in New York City called uh, Pedestrians for Acce Accessible and Safe Streets, or PASS. Uh, you know, what happened there, and Karen Gurji is one of the founders, Mike Odino is in the hall, 
uh, probably several other people, Ken Stewart, don't know if he's here, uh, <clears throat> was that uh, our dear departed Mayor Bloomberg in New York City uh, decided that he was going to install uh, several thousand countdown signals in New York City. And every blind person in New York sort of went, well, wait a minute, if you're doing countdown signals, what about accessible pedestrian signals, for goodness sake? I was like, oh, yeah, we kind of forgot about that. And, but the threat was such that it pulled together uh, essentially every organization of, of, of people who are blind or visually impaired in, the, in, in New York City to push for access. And <clears throat> I think that's the kind of model that needs to happen on a community-wide basis and, and through that nationwide to actually make a difference in terms of street design and, and accessibility in, in, uh, in every city in the country and in the country as a whole. Uh, so we need to pull together, folks. <clears throat> you know, I, I often think of the traffic engineering community. Can you imagine looking at, for example, the Statue of Liberty with a penny held between you and the statue? You can take that penny and block the entire Statue of Liberty if you hold it close enough to your eye. That's how we look at the world. But the, tra the traffic engineers are the Statue of Liberty. They're huge. It's a huge colossus. And when they survey the landscape, they see millions upon millions of cars and drivers. And over there in the corner, they see us on the shore. And if we don't pull together on this, then we may disappear. So I encourage this organization to speak loudly and seek coalitions to come up with solutions and press for access on an ongoing basis going forward. We owe our independence as a community to traffic engineers, but they didn't do it on purpose. The next move, they got to do on purpose. Thank you, everybody. Madam Chair? Is well, that Mitch? Is yep. that Mitch? Yep, it is. All right, you're Mitch, recognized. Mitch Pomerantz. Lucas, uh, along with the issue of, of quiet uh, hybrid vehicles, um, those of us who still do uh, walk the streets from time to time, uh, I certainly have noticed, I said walk the streets. Those, those of us who do that, I think, are, are beginning to notice that even uh, internal combustion vehicles, when they are stopped at an intersection, are uh, close to silence as to make no difference uh, to whether they can be heard or not. They can't. So I think that uh, to add one more challenge to the uh, issue of navigating safely around the streets, uh, I think we have to recognize that there is a belief in this country and even more so in Europe 
that automobiles ought to be seen and not heard. And, and so beyond the work that ACB and others have put into uh, trying to get um, hybrid and electric vehicles to make no sound uh, or as little as possible, uh, we need to, to realize that uh, internal combustion engines, uh, if they're not already there, they're really close to it. And, and they, too, will pose um, a mobility hazard that we're going to have to deal with. Thanks. Okay, we'll take one more comment or question. Mike Cadino. Mike Cadino. Is this a comment on this current issue? Yes. All right, you're recognized, Mike. Thank, thank you, thank you, Madam Chairman. Uh, Lucas, thank you very much for knowing the history of the past coalition. I greatly appreciate the recognition uh, here in this room for the work that we did in New York City. And uh, the past coalition is very, very successful in the work that they are currently doing in working with the DOC. I'd also like to share with uh, this body uh, what the Long Island uh, chapter has done as part of the affiliate of New York City. We did sue Nassau County and uh, settled our case, and uh, with the settlement from that case, we were able to provide an educational day, and we brought in those mentioned by Lucas, um, uh, Rob Wall Emerson, uh, Janet Barlow, uh, Gene Berkwin, and uh, they trained traffic engineers, they trained orientation and mobility instructors, they trained blind folks for a day in Suff on Suffolk County on Long Island, and uh, it was a very successful uh, event for the day, and the amazing part was the traffic engineers from Suffolk County had no clue how blind folks actually approached intersections and prepared to cross the street. When they learned that we actually used the traffic to our not, you know, learning about the intersection and how the, the vehicles were moving through that intersection, they were amazed, and I'm hoping that they did take that back and share it with their colleagues. But we did have eight engineers in the room that actually build traffic intersections. So thank you for the recognition. And we need, a lot of, we need to do a lot of work here with this whole body. Michael Biden, Madam Chair. Uh, Ma Madam Chair. Okay. There we go. Ma thank you very much. We are going to work. Oh, okay. We're going to, I'm going to recognize Ray Campbell, and then uh, we're going oh. to have a little change in our uh, program up here. Okay. Um, Lucas, uh, my question is, I'll keep it short, in Chicago, and I'm sure other cities too, another issue that's affecting our access is the bus rapid transit and where they're doing platforms in the street. Are you aware of any standards or research that's being done to make, the, make sure that those things are accessible to us? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, there, you know, there are standards, of course, for, um, uh, for the edges, for the detectable warning on the edges. However, in, getting, in access to getting to those platforms, uh, which is, I think, the point you're raising, yeah. uh, I, I, know of, I don't know of any regulation in that regard. There may be some that I'm not aware of. Definitely an issue we've got to look for. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Lucas. We really appreciate this. this is such an important topic for all of us. Thank you. Yes, it was great. Thank you. All right. We're going to um, work straight through what would be the break as we did yesterday. Here is what we are going to do. 
First of all, the presentation from the RDC that's normally made before the break uh, will uh, be uh, kind of rolled it. They have a half an hour after the break. So uh, RDC, if you all can incorporate what you would uh, be saying here into that section, we would appreciate it. We will have a couple of door prizes and also, I will remind you that the mini mall is in the back left corner of the room. And if you need to take a personal break, uh, sometimes that's real important, <laughs> feel free to do so. Um, but we are going to move right along so that we can get to all of our business this morning. So I will recognize Catalina Martinez to draw some door prizes. Madam Chair, real quickly, I just, since we're moving on with the program, I would ask that anyone that was a captain of a walk team for the Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk, if you, a, a one representative for each team, could you please move up towards the front of the podium so you'll be, be ready to go when we do the uh, plaque ceremony. So, thank you. Good morning. And, and before Cantalina begins... I, um, I was the captain of the E-Racers. Debbie Dethridge, if you're out there, would you uh, assume the co-captainship of this team, please? <laughs> okay, Catalina. Hello. Oh, here we go. Thank you. Good morning. The first prize is a $25 cash from ACB of Michigan. Thank you. And the winner... Richard Crooks, are you here? No, doesn't sound like it. Nope. Todd Falstrom, are you here? Yeah, All right. <laughs> Collect your prize on the right-hand side of the podium. The next, the next door prize we have is from California. It is a combination. It's a watch. It, it's three things. It's jelly beans, a clock, and a timer. Debbie, Debbie Hazelton, are you here? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, let's do one more. One more? One yes, of, you guys, is this going to be all the door prizes? Because I have a big one. Let's do a big one. How about a $50 one? Sounds great. From ACB of Florida. Here we go. Jim Crack. Are you here? Yes, no? Oh, okay. Stephen Mendelson. Charles Naberry, Suzanne Pollock from Minnesota. Are you here, Suzanne? Rex Ransom. Charles Naberry. Nobody wants $50. Okay, let's try again. 
Are you here, Charles? Okay, let's try again. Kelly Matson. Richard College. John Huffman. All right. From Indiana. All right. Congratulations. Very good. All right. We are going to now turn the time over to the Resource and Development Committee. Dan Spoon is the uh, member of the ACB Board of Directors and is co-chair of that committee with Dan... Let's have order, please. And is co-chair of the committee with Dan Dillon from Hermitage, Tennessee. Also participating in the presentation is Donna Brown, chair of the WALK from Romney, West Virginia, and Leslie Spoon, chair of the ACB Auction Subcommittee from Orlando, Florida. So, RDC, give us some good news. Thank you. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Well, as Carla said, I'm Dan Dillon, and I co-chair the uh, Resource Development Committee, the RDC, with Dan Spoon. And I think most of you know what the Resource Development Committee is, but for those of you new people, I would say that the Resource Development Committee, or the RDC, oversees uh, most of the fundraising um, opportunities for, uh, or projects, I should say, for ACB. I want to thank you all for participating in the ACB Angels Memorial Program. Uh, I hope most of you got by to get your hands on that beautiful wall and, and the plaques. And I would invite you down the road. Unfortunately, we, we have lost some members recently and invite you to maybe even maybe think about participating in the uh, angels program uh, down the road so far the uh, angels memorial program has raised over $14,000 uh, <clears throat> thank you and we had a, a fundraising event at opening session many of you of your you you affiliates uh, participated in uh, making donations as uh, your affiliate was introduced and asked uh, for delegate votes. I mean, delegate and uh, alternate delegate and uh, nominating committee uh, person. I want to thank you for that. We raised over $7,000 Sunday night. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, we... Um, we have some wonderful programs uh, with American Council of the Blind, but we could have a lot more. 
and when it, we could extend some of these programs if we brought in more money. So I just want to invite you all to, to think about that. Uh, and when, when we have these fundraisers where the affiliates can split the proceeds with ACB, uh, it, it's just a win-win situation. So be, be thinking about that down the road. Now I'd like to introduce the chair of the auction committee, Leslie Spoon. Good morning, ACB. I'm a little tired. <laughs> I just want to tell you guys how bittersweet this was. Um, I have a wonderful committee. They have just not just only been a committee to me. They are truly my, my good friends. They have taught me so many things throughout the six years that I have been chair. I have, I have loved the auction. So it's been a true, true experience for me. Um, on my committee is Linda Allison, Cindy Van Winkle, Marsha Farrow, Zelda Gebhardt, Kim Abair, and Penny Crane, which could not be here. It was her 50th wedding anniversary. So we wish her well. Hope she had a good night. <laughs> um, and then Angela Lanier and our, our wonderful, wonderful, I cannot say enough about him. He has truly been a great friend to me. He writes wonderful articles. Jeff Tom. Let's give everybody a round of applause. I just want to say thanks to the affiliates. Uh, I know I called and called and called and, and nagged and nagged and nagged, and that's my job. So thank you so much to the affiliates and the vendors and special interest affiliates. We had a lot of people contribute, and thank you for, the, for people coming out last night to bid. We did really wonderful into Verizon for sponsoring the auction this year. We made $17,460. So thank you so much to everybody. I really, really appreciate it. It was the 10th anniversary. I, I truly love the Dillons. They got me involved. Uh, Brenda Dillon is up there dancing around and maybe shopping a little, I think, this morning. So thanks again, guys. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, now I'd like to introduce the chair of the walk committee, Donna Brown. Good morning, everyone, and good morning on ACB Radio to everyone. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to stand here and report about the walk. But before I do that, I need to thank several people. Um, first and foremost, we had four great sponsors of the walk. Uh, the Macular Degeneration Foundation 10, 000, gave $10,000 toward the walk. <laughs> Our dear friends from Vanda Pharmaceuticals uh, donated $5,000 for the walk. <laughs> and again, our dear friends from Regal, uh, Entertainment, cinemas, whatever. <laughs> Sorry, we don't we don't have regal in where I live, so. <laughs> um, but anyway, once again, they donated five thousand dollars toward the walk. <laughs> and finally, the Buell Fund, uh, who I actually got, I knew Charles Buell, so that that's kind of special to me. Uh, donated two thousand dollars to the toward the walk. And I've got to thank our 
wonderful Nancy Becker from the Minneapolis office, who is the main cog in this walk. Uh, she, she, is just, she just works tirelessly developing the website, answering questions, helping people to sign up, and, and just whatever. Thank you, Nancy. And my great committee, I have the best committee, Linda Allison, Dan Dillon, uh, sorry, I got lost my place, uh, um, Dan Spoon, my co-chair, Leslie Spoon, Melvin Smith, uh, Robert Spangler, uh, Katie Frederick, Sarita Kimball. Sarita was unable to be here, and Sarita, I hope you're listening on ACB Radio. We missed you, but Sarita is a great contributor to our, our committee. And finally, I want to thank uh, President Kim Charlson for giving me the opportunity to chair this committee. So now, I imagine you're waiting to hear some information. Oh, well, okay. So here we go. Uh, as of just a few minutes ago, when I checked my phone, <laughs> so far we have raised a total of $55,232. That is fantastic. We know there's more money to come in. So... Um, I really want to thank all of those who participated in various ways. There, there are a lot of people in this organization who were unable to attend the conference, and, and they participated as virtual walkers. Thank you. There were a lot of people who weren't, just wanted to make donations, and some gave generous donations. Thank you. But now we want to recognize the teams that really worked hard and, and brought in a lot of money for ACB. Um, on Sunday at our walk, well, you know what? I forgot to thank the people who got up early Sunday morning and walked. Uh, I just thank you so much. There was probably, I don't know, 60 people there. I, I'm not real, I'm a terrible judge. And I want you to know, our ACB president is a great cheerleader. I don't know if she was a cheerleader as a young a youngster, but she is a good. Well, she said she was a cheerleader. Well, you you you've con, you've continued your your expertise in that area. She was a great cheerleader. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm, the, some teams were recognized on Sunday, and actually, which is great. Some of the statistics have changed a little bit. It it, it it's. It's a little sad to me because a team overtook West Virginia, but it's going to be temporary. I know that. But anyway. <laughs> so, however, those Florida Hurricanes, as, as they have in the past, uh, just flew into town and really, they've raised so far $13,915. And so... These, these teams that I'm going to um, mention will be receiving plaques, okay, um, in their appreciation. Our, right now, but it's going to be temporary, right now, the second place team is the ten, uh, from Tennessee, the Brenda Dillon, Memorial, or Brenda Dillon Mall Walkers. And right now, but it's going to be temporary, they have raised $2,955. Out the plaques. I can't talk and do that. Is, is anybody handing out the plaques? Dan is down. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Dan Spoon's handing out the plaques, and I was a little concerned. 
but nobody was doing that. Right now, and again, it's temporary, in third place, only $5 behind Tennessee is the West Virginia Walker. So if anyone wants to donate, go down to registration. We only need $10 to overtake Tennessee. (laughs) That's right. So right now, little West Virginia has $2,950. And... I love the name of this next team. Yeah, some people were really creative with their names. The Proud Prairie People. That's hard to say. From Illinois, they have raised, and somebody helped them get over the top here. They've raised $2,099. Somebody give them a dollar. <laughs> Our next team is the Missouri Mules. <laughs> <laughs> However, they were, they, they were not stubborn at all because they've brought in $2,092 so far. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite names, the Kentucky Erasers. <laughs> and this was actually a good year, too. 1976, they've raised $1,976 at this point. Our next, uh, our next team is the president's team. Uh, yay, president's team. And, you know, we certainly thank our president, uh, not only for being the wonderful cheerleader that she was, but for, for, for supporting this walk in the way that she has a, a, as a leader and bringing in contributions as well. They've raised, so far, $1,665. Now, here's another catchy name. The Louisiana Cajun Sweet Things. <laughs> they, they've raised $1,235 at this point. Now, this next name on the website, I was having trouble understanding what it said. And, and Mar- Nancy Becker, I think, straightened me out. But it's the California Colossals or something. Anyway, they've raised $1,015. And then we have our friends from way down there in Texas. The Trailblazers have raised an even $1,000. And our dedicated one-man show from the ACB of Indiana, Don Coors, and, and, and our tireless walk volunteer has raised $900. Now, this is really cool, an, an affiliate, would, and it's harder for affiliate, or, or special interest affiliates, but CCLVI, and they call themselves the firecrackers, <laughs> they have currently raised $775. Now, this next team, I think it's a one-lady show, and I think it was named after her guide dog, and, and I don't... I don't even know the lady's name, and I'm sorry. But I do know the name of the team, and it was called Garnet's Girl. And this one-person show raised $740. And now we have our friends from North Dakota, the Thundering Herd. They, they have raised $375. Our 
friends from PCB, I always have to be careful how I say that, um, the Keystones from Pennsylvania have raised $170. Now, here's another name that I just, I just think is hysterical, the Virginia Hams <laughs> at $145. Now, I want to recognize another team, and I'm not sure if we have enough plaques, but, but that's okay. This is another uh, special interest affiliate who really supports the walk, and that's the Bits Hard Drivers. <laughs> at $125. So in closing, because I'm sure you're tired of hearing from me, um, it is not too late to donate to the ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk. Oh, somebody gave me a donation. Woo, thank you. Oh, uh, Dan Dillon says it's different. You know, Dan Dillon and I are both a little bit on the competitive side. <laughs> but anyway, um, it, it's not too late for even participants to seek donations. Um, donations will be, of course, they, they can be accepted anytime, but for this year's walk totals, they will be accepted through July 31st, and then in the Minneapolis office, they'll begin cutting the checks to the uh, respective affiliates. So once again, $55,232 for ACB and its affiliates, and thank you to everyone. Okay, thank you, Donna. I would like to tell you that this was the eighth year we had the ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk. And after eight years, we have raised over a quarter of a million dollars for ACB. Thank you. Now I'd like to recognize Mike. Um, yeah, I'll be all right. Mike Godino wants to talk about the MMS. And, Mike, I'd like to know how close we are to that uh, $100,000 annual uh, target. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I'm, I'm here on the floor. I'm not up on the podium. Uh, Mike Godino, I'm the chair of the MMS committee. I want to thank all of you who have contributed to the MMS because it's a great program, and we're real close. We, we, we came in needing to raise $500 a month. We're up. 300 a month. I got $200 left to raise per month to reach that $100,000 mark. So we are so close. And uh, we, we have set up a table. We're going to continue taking forms right outside of this ballroom. Today and tomorrow, we have a, a table set up center of the ballroom doorways here on the, on the outside, right across from the uh, market uh, uh, food. So uh, I'd appreciate everybody coming on out and uh, looking. What are we looking at? $20 a month by what? Uh, 10, 10 folks? $20 a month from 10 folks will get us over that mark. So we're real close to making that $100,000 mark. And that is $100,000 per year. So, you know, it's a great contrib contribution to ACB. And uh, it goes right into the general fund, that much-needed general fund. Um, I but as the chair, I'd like to just take a moment to thank the committee. Uh, on that committee, two folks that are out healing right now, George Holliday and Gene Mann, couldn't make it for medical reasons. Uh, also, Kenny Maddox from Mississippi, he couldn't make it to, to, to convention. 
but uh, I want to thank all of them uh, for the work that we do throughout the year. Kathy Brockman has worked diligently with me this weekend at the table, and I appreciate all that she has done. Thank you. And uh, I, I'd, I'd like to send out a special thanks and a shout to Steve Hart, Shelley's husband. He has volunteered some time to sit at the table. Thank you, Steve. Our board liaison, Dan Spoon. Thank you, Dan. And our staff liaison, Nancy Becker in the Minnesota office. I really appreciate all the work everybody has done throughout the year. We're going we're gonna to do some good work this year to try and get it up on social media and get those shout-outs on social media, getting folks to join up that way. Let's, let's shoot for 200000 next year. <clears throat> so we do have that table set up, and uh, I, I really appreciate everything you're doing. Folks, you can... You can Donate half of this back to your home affiliate, so any, anything that you donate can go half back to your home affiliate or affiliate of your choice. So please get out there and fill out that form. And finally, I'd like to close by making the announcement that Albert Anderson from Illinois was our winner for last night. And I will be giving away two envelopes tomorrow. So if you can get out there today and fill out a form, you'll be in the drawing for tomorrow. Two envelopes, $140 in gift cards. And you got to spend $5 of that 140 tomorrow at uh, the mini mall in the back because there is a gift card for $5 in, <laughs> in that envelope. So really, I appreciate everything that everybody has done to raise money for ACB. Thank you so much. And let's not stop. Let's get out there and do an MMS form today. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. <clears throat> yes. Guys, let's, let's, make, let's make ourselves feel real proud when we leave this convention, and let's reach that goal of 100,000. We can do it. And I'm going to check into it myself, because I have to practice what I preach, right? Uh, I would like to... Uh, Dan Spoon, are you near Mike? Or... Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll announce that um, we're still selling ACB raffle tickets. They can be purchased at, purchased at the um, mini mall, they can be purchased until 3 o'clock at registration. Uh, it can be purchased from an RDC committee member. And then I would like to recognize uh, some people that have helped us with our fundraising projects. Our develop, development of our director of development, Tom Tobin, he's done a great job helping us with these projects. Tom, thank you. And our grant writer, um, JoLynn Bailey-Page. Let's thank her, too. And thank you again for supporting RDC and, and all their projects. And let's, let's see if we can even do better next year. Thank you, guys. All right. Here I am. She's already at the mic. You don't have to I don't want to keep anybody waiting. I don't want us to get off schedule. I'm already here. <laughs> All right. If you don't know who I am, I'm Janet Dickelman, the convention coordinator. I'm introducing myself because I just took over the mic. 
this is the 2016 convention report, or any one of you who has noticed has gone through my convention reports in the past, this is when Janet cries. Um, but before I start crying, I want to make a couple announcements and get that over with. Uh, oh, reminder, you need to know your banquet number on your banquet table, so make sure you have that when you go into the banquet tomorrow night. Uh, for the individual who lost their eyeglasses at the auction, Vicki has them at the information desk. Um, and for tour loading, if possible, especially for the Saturday tours, please try to get out to the bus a little bit early so we can get tours loaded and get them going. Thank you very much. Uh, before I start my report, we have a plaque that was presented by the mayor's office of Minneapolis and unfortunately we were not able to have someone from the mayor's office read this and we got the plaque um, a couple of days ago and um, I would like to introduce Vince Vito who is the director of sales here at the Hyatt who's going to read our plaque for us so I'm going to turn this over to Vince for a second. Good morning everybody. Um, before I read this, I just want to steal this moment while I have a microphone in front of me to say thank you to everybody here. It has been such a pleasure for not only me personally, but our entire team to have you in our hotel. We have gotten to know so many of you over the last week, and it is, it's really fun to get to spend time and get to know somebody over a long course of a week. Most of our guests are not here this long, so it's a... It's a lot of fun for us to get to know you and so many great people. We're so excited to have had you here and back again. So thank you. Okay, so in my hand is this beautiful plaque, and it's a proclamation. I'm going to warn you, there's a lot of uh, whereas's in here, so bear with me while I read this. Whereas the American Council of the Blind is a national consumer-based advocacy organization of blind and visually impaired Americans, and whereas the American Council of the Blind strives to improve quality of life for blind and visually impaired Americans by endeavoring to ensure equal opportunity for blind and visually impaired individuals, and whereas more than 1,500 members and friends of the American Council of the Blind will assemble for its 55th annual National Conference and Convention in the city of Minneapolis from July 1st through 9th, 2016, and whereas the American Council of the Blind of Minnesota, a statewide affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, is hosting this conference and convention, and whereas the city of Minneapolis welcomes local and national leaders dedicated to advocating and empowering people who are blind, and whereas the city of Minneapolis supports awareness of the Americans with Disabilities Act and committed to removing barriers for equitable outcomes and opportunities for all, and whereas the city of Minneapolis recognizes inclusion of people with disabilities, specifically people who are blind, are essential to making Minneapolis a world-class city, and whereas the proceeding of this conference and convention will be broadcast live to a worldwide audience over ACB internet radio services, and whereas 
the theme of this 55th annual conference and convention is Land of 10,000 Dreams. Now, therefore I, Betsy Hodges, mayor of the city of Minneapolis, do hereby proclaim July 1 through 9, 2016 as American Council of the Blind Week. Oops, whoa. Whoa, oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, sorry, guide dogs. Didn't mean to hurt any. Um, thank you so much, Vince, for reading that. That was great, and I'm really glad you did it instead of me with all those whereases. I am. Um, every year, I think, oh, this hotel is really wonderful, and I can't get any better hotel staff. But this year, hasn't the Hyatt been wonderful? This staff has been so accommodating and so helpful, and they've been everywhere. And my friend and convention services person, Cindy Lathrop, who is not going to come on microphone because she, like me, does not like public speaking, is standing right behind me, and she's here to support me, and she's been absolutely tremendous. Thank you, Cindy. And Lana. And the uh, Meet Minneapolis has been very helpful in getting a lot of information to me so that I could get information out to you. And I've been, I know, you know, when we started this, we thought this construction would all be done, but of course that was in 2013 when I signed the contract and uh, it just got a little delayed, so no control over the construction. All right, first of all, I'd like to thank the Minneapolis Host Committee. You know, working with people that you know is kind of different. My host committees in the past have all been unknowns to me, so they were kind of afraid of me. Not this group. They didn't even listen to me, no. It's like, oh, yeah, it's her. Well, we don't have to, yeah, whatever. But my host committee, ably led by our president, Jeff, including in alphabetical order, uh, Marion Hasselrud, Colleen Kitagawa, Catalina Martinez, Nancy Shattuck, Juliet Silvers, Mike Vining, and last but not least, my friend Nikki Schlender, who I found out after the fact was the one who was personally responsible for my life membership. Thank you to all of you. You are all... You were all invaluable with this convention planning, and I really appreciate your help, and uh, thank you. We'll, we'll have to have a final host committee meeting and uh, we'll all go out together and, and celebrate being done with the convention. Thank you. Um, national office, Eric, Kelly, and Sharon, I talked to you guys so many times before the convention, and you were all so helpful and had good questions and wanted to be involved and learn about the goings-on, and I really appreciated your help. Um, I can never say enough about the Minneapolis office. Lane, Nancy, Dee, and Lori, you guys just rock. You are the best. And 
what did you guys think of the change in registration doing the convention packet pickup? Wasn't that great? Yay. We'll do that again next year for sure. I'd also like to thank Michael Malver, Nikki Schlender, and Jim Jurek. Jurek, I can never, I'm sorry, Jim, for, yes, yes, I know, for uh, helping with telephone registration. They were always available and always willing to call people back to do their registration, so thank you. You know, there's an adage in Minnesota about Minnesota nice. Did we have, did we see that with our volunteers? Wow. We had volunteers all over the place, and we had, everybody was so nice and so helpful. They were really outstanding volunteers. And I have to do a, a shout-out to my personal assistant, Miss Camille Becker, who was at my beck and call all week and ran around for me. Thank you. That was really nice. Now, here's the hardest part of my report. This is where I get choked up, so... I have to thank my awesome convention committee. I could not do this without them. My officer liaison, Carla, who's always there when I need her, sometimes when I don't know she's not. <laughs> no, no, as I've said before, the best compliment Carla's given me is, you don't need me. And that really is, no, she, but she's always available. Rick, Mr. A.V. Rick. Yay! Weren't those ALDs great this year for all of you using the ALDs? And he worked so hard on the ALD handbook and just did a wonderful job. Thank you. Uh, Marjorie, how do you thank Marjorie? Or how do you, how do you? Marjorie wears way too many hats for me to talk about them. So I'm just going to say, you just, you're everywhere. Vicky, information desk lady. She is always there, always knowledgeable, always on top of things. Thank you so much. Hey, what do you think about our new tour, tour coordinator, Rhonda Trot? She did great. And she sure got her uh, baptism in rain this year, didn't she? Rhonda, we had so much fun doing this together, and you did great for your first year. Well, you did great for if this was your 10th year. Everything went really smoothly. Miss Sally Benjamin and your volunteers. She keeps our volunteers organized. She stays at that volunteer desk. She gets people signed in and out, and she makes sure we have enough volunteers to at any given time. She's just... That's my and Mr. Smitherman, Mr. Exhibits. You know, you guys, my committee, you do your jobs so that I can do mine. I don't have to worry about your jobs. You just keep on the straight and narrow, and I love you guys all so very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, should we talk a little about next year? Yeah. Hate, to, hate to say goodbye to Minneapolis, but we do move on. Next year, we are at the Nugget in Sparks, Nevada. 
and uh, convention dates are Friday, June 30th through Friday, July 7th. And opening general session will be Saturday night next year. And uh, so that's, everything's going to move forward just today. And we'll send out lots of information about that as it's coming up. And you want to know where we're going to be in 2018? All right. We will be at the Union Station Hotel in St. Louis. Now, I have, to t- I have to tell you about Missouri. Missouri is so excited that we're coming to St. Louis that they've already invited me to their, October, their convention in October. And I said, well, you know, I'm flattered to come, but do you want to wait until your fall convention in 2017, closer to the national convention in 2018? And what did they say? Oh, no, we want you to come back again. And that convention will be Friday, June 29th through Friday, July 6th in St. Louis. So that concludes my convention report. And I just want to say thank you to Kim and the board for letting me continue to, letting me do this because I love putting this convention together. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. You know, Sunday night, Sunday night when there were those two surprise life memberships presented, (laughs) were you here when Lane Waters and Janet got their life memberships? Well, we can call them the Minnesota Twins. (laughs) All right. Um. Janet, do you have, I think people always ask, so I'll just ask, do you have um, a phone number for them to call and make reservations yet, or is that to be announced? Okay, that will be announced when it's time for you to call. Hotel rates, Janet, 89? 89. Yep. In Reno. In Reno, 89. All right, the next item on the report is the treasurer's report. And um, I could give you lots and lots of numbers. We could go on for an hour or so just on numbers. How would you like that? Shall we do it? (laughs) Good, you gave the right answer. (laughs) All right, ACB has um, come a long way. In the last four or five years, um, we ran into some hard times, as you know, a few years back, and we've been taking some major steps to dig ourselves out of a situation that happened. And um, actually, through no fault of our own, um, just some of our resources, as, as often happens with nonprofits, some of our fundraising streams were not quite as good as they had been in the past. And so we needed to either modify them or develop new ones. And we've done a little bit of both. 
I'm just going to give you some highlights this year um, of, of the report. Uh, I, I gave a more detailed report at the board meeting last Saturday. The information that I have at this time is uh, through May 31 of this year, which would be five months into the budget. And um, I would like to remind you that the pattern in ACB is that we receive the majority of our income in the first part of the year, the first half of the year. There's still income that happens after, uh, the, after July, after the convention, but it is by far not as much as, as occurs in the first part of the year. And if you think about it, that only makes sense. When do we collect 99% of our dues? In that first quarter, right? Okay. When do we collect convention money? In the second and third quarter, correct? Actually, um, May, June, and July. We're not collecting money that relates to the convention after July, after the first part of July. Um, and so a lot of our income happens early. When do we collect legislative seminar income? The first quarter. But what happens to our expenses? Do they stop after July? <laughs> no. In fact, some expenses are month-to-month, uh, -month, like rent, lease, the lease payments. Other expenses, such as the convention, are paid primarily after we get through collecting the money. Now, we've already spent quite a bit on the convention because we have bills like programs that we pay, and, and so some of those happen, but the huge expenses. Things like the cost of the exhibit hall. The exhibit hall is not free. Um, it costs a lot of money to set that exhibit hall up. Um, the hotel bill. The, a lot of the things like um, some, some of the costs that relate to tours. Those kinds of things come afterward. So expenses at the, end, at the last half of the year outweigh the income. I just want to give you a few little things, though, that I think you'll find interesting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let's collect the contribution from that person. <laughs> Four paws must be a double contribution. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We have unrestricted contributions. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, a lot of those will change as we move forward. There's a couple of things I want to note here under unrestricted contributions. The main thing here... <coughs> Excuse me. Can somebody get me a glass of water? <coughs> um, the main, one of the main things here I want to note is the major change in our direct mail fundraising as spearheaded by our Director of Development, Tom Tobin. 
our budgeted amount <clears throat> this year through May would be $12,749. Thanks. Perfect. Okay. And um, the budget for the whole year is 30597 Now, last year on our fundraising, our direct mail, we had raised $12,307 at this time. This year, it's up to 16486 That is a very positive move because that doesn't just happen because somebody happens to like a letter. It happens through hard work and through really, really making sure, trying to, to, um, to send our information um, more and more to people who are anxious to read it. On the downside, we've been doing telemarketing. And remember I said that sometimes in, in nonprofits, things go a little awry with certain income streams? Well, that is happening with the telemarketing. And we had budgeted $48,000 for telemarketing, but that is not going to happen this year. In fact, we're going to kind of be out of the telemarketing business. And so at this point, last year we had collected $32,600, but this year only 3016 And on the expense side, um, it just didn't make sense for us to continue that, that effort because of increased costs and a lot of other factors. So, you know, while many things are up, some things are not. Um, our planned giving is, is going pretty well. We are pretty much under budget yet, but we are way up over last year. And uh, we budgeted 100000 through May. That would be 41667 We've actually only got 14174 in this column this year. But compared to last year, it was only 2281 So we certainly are moving in the right direction. And a lot of that is bequest. And we just can't predict that a whole lot. We just have to kind of... Um, you know, we kind of have to look at that and, and see uh, how that goes. And we just really don't know, you know, until the end of the year. So our total unrestricted contributions budgeted were 309097 The budget through May, the five months, was 128790 And the actual for this year through May was 79747 Last year, we had collected 83678 But remember, we're taking the telemarketing out there, so we're really doing pretty well there in that area. Um, I want to skip down through uh, several things, and um, I'd like to make a note here that uh, we are seeing um, some increased life membership contributions this year over uh, last year, and that was a wonderful thing. Our ACB angels, as the um, committee reported, are doing very well. Our grant income is really, um, really moving along. And uh, we had a budgeted figure for restricted grants of $100,000 
And last year, we had collected 42700 at this point. And this year, we have, we have that collected that $100,000. And that is not just uh, an accident. That is greatly in part to the hard work of Eric Bridges and also JoLynn Bailey-Page is working in the grants area as well. Sponsorships of both the convention, legislative seminar are up, as you've been hearing, and that makes a huge difference for our programs. That is not money that's just extra and unexpected. It's not just money that we can say, ooh, good, we've got extra. Um, as you will see uh, in the rest of my report, it, it is money that is going to help us do a number of things. And I'll come back to that in just a second. One other area that I want to report a big change to you is, um, well, no, I think I'll skip it. Because uh, it's the ACBES area, and Michael Garrett is going to come and report on that. So I don't want to steal his thunder there. That, I'll leave that. So our total support and revenue thus far this year we had budgeted $1,030,085 for the entire year. Prorating that through May, it's 429202 Actual, this year, we have uh, received revenue of $501,819. Last year, at this time, we had received 352206 so, thank you to lots and lots of people who have helped with it. Now, I want to talk a little bit about expenses. Just as our revenue is up, some of our expenses are down. Other expenses are right where we expect them to be. I want to especially talk about the big change in our cost for occupancy. Our, we, you know, both of our offices moved in, uh, in the last year. Minneapolis moved first. They actually just moved across the hall. But it made a big difference in the cost. And the Virginia office moved from Arlington to Alexandria. And that made a huge difference in the cost. Just the lease costs alone were major, major differences. So the total occupancy and related expenses um, in, in the Virginia office, we budgeted $72,484. Through May, that would have been 30202 Last year, for this line, we had actually spent $57,592 by the end of May. This year... It's 35912 Great work on that line. The, um, the same thing is true in Minnesota. Um, our office lease occupancy and expenses are less here as well. This year we budgeted $30,977 for the whole year for the Minneapolis office. Through May, that would be 12907 Last year, in the old office, 
through May, we spent $21,621. This year, we spent $11,872. Now, we have some expenses before I give you some final numbers. And there are many, many other numbers here that we could go on for a long time. But Kim is laughing. She knows that's true. (laughs) Um, But... Uh, I want to remind you that there are some other things as well that are happening this year. Um, There's going to be a changeover, as you've heard, from cassette to cartridge in the Braille Forum. And that is an expense that we haven't seen yet, but it is going to happen later this year. And yes, it is covered by a grant But that grant shows up on the revenue side, just as it shows on the expense side of the budget. Therefore, um, those costs are yet to uh, to become a real thing. Right now, they are estimates. So I want to give you the bottom bottom line here on our um, expenses as soon as I find the next page. Okay, Um, I'm skipping all the committee costs and so on. Each committee has its own line in the budget, by the way. Um, They have costs as well that are uh, budgeted budgeted at the beginning of the year. Okay, our total expenses. Remember that our total revenue was budgeted at $1,030,000. Our budget for expenses... This year is $1,250,375. Through May, that's 520990 The actual expenses last year were 530303 through May. This year, it's 503968 And remember that the, um, the amount that we had received at that point was 501 So we're doing pretty well at this point, but we have a couple of other things that we have to remember. Our surplus or deficit from operations before the convention budgeted was a minus 220,290. Therefore, through May, it would be minus 91,787. Last year, through May, we were running a deficit of minus $178,096. This year, our deficit is minus 2,149. Now, let's talk about the convention. We don't have the, the revenue from the convention and the expenses are not included in those figures. What we have to do in the budget process is just kind of guess what is going to come in and what is going to go out through the convention because the budget process happens in the fall, and that's even before a lot of expenses and a lot of, of, of revenue are really known for the convention. This year, we budgeted, um, to, we budgeted a re- the revenue of $250,000. We budgeted an expense of $175,000. So our budget 
is, is a surplus from the convention, a profit, of $75,000. Now, what do we do with that $75,000? That is included in this entire budget, and that, um, that is what helps to balance the, or bring this budget closer to balance. So, when we get down to the bottom line, our net surplus or deficit from operations after the convention, we budgeted a minus $145,290. Through May, that would be minus $91,787. Last year, as you just heard, we had actually spent 178096 and this year through May, not counting any of the other expenses that we know are happening later in the year, we're doing okay right now, but we have to be very careful. We now are at minus 2,149. And that is, that concludes my report. Okay. Would um, yeah. Would Dan Spoon, Chris Gray, and Joel Snyder please come to the podium? Um, and and Michael Garrett, are you here? All right. The next person to address us is um, is is Michael Garrett, who is chair of the. Uh, well, he's yes, he's the chair of the ACB Enterprises and Services, which we all know better as the thrift stores. And um, I'm wondering if, which Michael Garrett is going to speak to us today, the one that we've known all this time, um, at, or the other one that we, were you all at that auction last night? <laughs> I think that Michael Garrett should deliver this next report. How about it? <laughs> there you go, Michael. You were great last night. Oh, thank you, thank you. Good morning, ACB. You ready to bid? Ready to bid? <laughs> Good morning, everybody. It, I, I have the, the distinct pleasure to serve as the chairman of the ACBES board. I want to recognize and thank uh, the members of the board who serve with me who, or who allow me to serve as chairman. Uh, Carla Rushable, Dan Spoon, David Trott, George Holliday, wish you were here, buddy, uh, Jeff Tom, and, and Michael Godino. You know, we, we, we spend a lot of time uh, thanking each other uh, on these committees and boards, but I think it's really fitting to do so because when you think about it, there's a lot of work that goes into serving on these committees. And, and I personally truly appreciate the wisdom and support of the ACBES board. I also want to recognize and thank uh, the Minnesota office, all of the folks in that office, Dee, Nancy, Lori, and of course, Lane Waters. And, and to tell you about Lane, 
you know, we, we, we all thank Lane because he does so many things. And all of the hats that he puts on, and he, he, he does such a great job under all of those hats. And all of that, he has time enough to shepherd the growth and the expansion of the thrift stores. So, Lane, thank you, guy. So, as currently constituted, we have three thrift stores, Milwaukee, and which that store is doing well, has, has found some uh, innovative ways to increase uh, its donations and, uh, and its revenue. Our Amarillo, Texas store, which is doing fairly well. And, of course, our Lubbock, Texas store. As you know, in the thrift store business, we take gently used items and resell them. And in some cases, we've taken, uh, we develop relationships with furniture stores or other outlets, and we take uh, their bruised and dented material and sell those. Uh, I'm not averse to buying a, a bruised piece of uh, furniture or equipment. Just, just hide the scratch marks. <laughs> but our stores are, are, are doing fairly well. And last year, we brought before you the manager of our, our Lubbock store because in his career, he has raised over a million dollars for ACB. Now, now, Jerry's a very shy man, and I can tell you that since that time, he's continuing to do well. He still is our leading uh, contributor in terms of income to ACB from the thrift stores. I talk about the managers of our stores because they are the ones who really make the, the, the stores go. They supervise the employees, and I have a special affinity for the employees of our stores because for them, it's a livelihood. But for us, it's a means to continue the work that ACB does. And for the most part, our, employ our employees understand that and they work hard to make sure that we can continue the work of ACB. So I thank them also. So the important thing is, how are we doing? Every year, I, uh, you guys know anything about body language? <laughs> if, you, if you could see the body language, this year, you'd probably see, say that uh, Michael Garrett, is, he looks a little more relaxed. His, his shoulders aren't tight. He's kind of got a, got a swag about him, you know? <laughs> I am, I, I've stood before you and, and 
cautiously said that we hope to resume a prominent part in the income of ACB. This year, I approach you with cautious swag (laughs) to say that we are moving forward in our quest to become a a substantial contributing part of ACB's income. To date, as, as Carla mentioned, as of May 31st, we are a, a, more than 25% ahead of budget. I say that cautiously because I hope it continues. And as, as currently constituted, we will continue to strive to make improvements so that ACBS returns as, as one of the largest contributors to ACB funds. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. <clears throat> Good. All right. Um, the, next, the next thing that we're going to do here is present some awards concerning the audio description project. So I will turn this over to Dan Spoon. All right. Dan Spoon, who is the chair of the audio description committee, is going to share some information with us about the Audio Description Awards. So, Dan? All right. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Let me audio describe how, over the next 15 minutes, the Audio Description Project report is between you and lunch. No, just kidding. I want to, I want to first thank our committee. We worked very hard this year Uh, Kim gave us this opportunity three years ago, and I could not be more proud of the work that our committee has done. We now have eight subcommittees of the Audio Description Project. So I'd real quickly just like to run through our subcommittee chairs. They've done an outstanding job this year. For our media subcommittee, we have Carl Richardson from Massachusetts. You've seen all his work uh, helping to craft resolutions, uh, conversations with Hulu, Netflix, all kinds of wonderful things that we're seeing, an explosion of audio description uh, in media. Uh, Next, we have our Audio Description Project Conference Committee. That's co-chaired by Susan Glass and JoLynn Bailey-Page. We just completed a wonderful biannual uh, ADP conference where we had over 40 folks from across the country and across the world uh, participate in audio description. It was especially, um, I think, beneficial because it included people from industry, describers, and consumers. And we, as part of that, Susan Glass put together a mentor-mentee program which paired some of our blind and visually impaired ACB members with <coughs> members from industry and describers. 
to learn what it's like to walk in our shoes at an ACB convention for three days. So you can imagine that was quite an interesting experience for our industry and describer folks. We've made really wonderful strides with our subcommittee on performing arts, museums, and national parks. That's chaired by Margie, Margie Donovan, who could not be here today from Sacramento, Folsom, California, but Margie's team is doing a wonderful job. Please go to our ADP website. You will see over, uh, I think now, 200 postings of museums and performing arts centers that are now audio described. Next, we wanted to talk about uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, three new committees we have formed this year. The first one is our 508 subcommittee, chaired by Pat Sheehan from Maryland. Right. We are working very hard with the refresh of the 508. We are working very hard to make sure that audio description gets included in our federal agencies. And this is a daunting, daunting responsibility, but an amazing opportunity for us in the blind and visually impaired community. Just think of how much material is provided by all the federal agencies. And if we can make sure that all that material is audio described, whether it be presentations, commercials, websites, it's an amazing opportunity to bring more audio description to our community. We are also putting together a new Young Describers contest. It's called Benefits of audio description and education. We're going to call them the Batty Awards. And we're going to give those out to aspiring young students from K through 12 who will experience audio description and then write about it, send an essay in, and we're going to try to put a contest together with winners to be awarded at next year's mid-year. So thank you very much to that committee. That committee is chaired by Susan Glass. And then finally, we have a certification committee that's just getting started to talk about how do we get work across the industry to develop partnerships to get to a, finally an audio describer certification so that when we go and, and, and participate in audio description, we have an opportunity to know that it's of a certain quality and standard. So that committee is being chaired by... Uh, Mary Hanks uh, from Houston. So thank you, Mary. Next, I want to turn it over to Joel Snyder, our director of the Audio Description Project, to tell us what's new with AD. Here's Joel. Whoa, thank you, Dan. All right, thank you, Dan. I am quite honored to be speaking to you for the eighth time as the director of the American Council of the Blind's Audio Description Project. Um, thanks to Kim Charlson, our president, and Dan Spoon, chair of our committee. We are going gangbusters, better than ever before. Yeah, yeah. And, um, well, I guess I should ask, though, I should ask, I don't know, is there anybody in the room here who enjoys audio description? <laughs> All right! That's what I like to hear. As Dan, I'm just going to review a few things we've accomplished uh, before we go to Chris Gray and hear about our awards that we gave this year. Um, we've been around now since January 2009, accomplished a great deal. One of the neat things is we did, uh, as Dan mentioned, the fifth time we've had an audio description project conference uh, running from Sunday through Tuesday. We had uh, people from 15 states and the District of Columbia and rep a representation from seven other nations, Canada, Germany. 
Germany, Spain, UK, South Africa, New Zealand, and Brazil. You'll, yeah, just great stuff. And now, uh, today, or rather yesterday, Wednesday, Thursday, today, and Friday, we've been running our, uh, I think it's our 10th uh, or so, or maybe 11th, Audio Description Institute. We have nine fantastic describers in training. They're going to be wonderful. They will go through three days of intensive work, and they are here in the room. So let's hear it for our Audio Description Institute people. You bet. Listen, if, if you have never experienced the Audio Description Project website, you are missing out on something. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Make note of this. acb.org slash ADP. There you go. Simple, right? Fred Brack, our webmaster, has done a fantastic job of, yes, 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 of, of pulling together. I'll tell you, that site really is internationally the go-to place for information about audio description, especially in the United States, of course. Um, we, have, uh, we keep track of all the DVDs that have description. We have links uh, on each one, so you can go to Amazon and buy uh, the DVD, and ACB gets a nickel for each one or something like that, you know? And while you're there, when you've gone through the ADP site and you're on Amazon, buy a couple of refrigerators, would you? Because then we'll, maybe you can even buy like a Porsche or something. I don't know. And then we'd get like several nickels or something. I don't know. But yeah, we have uh, all, let's see, in, in, um, in 2015, there were 122 DVDs released with description. We're already in 2016 up to 77 uh, DVDs. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So all of that's on the website. We've got updates on all TV shows that have description. You can actually go there and find out right now, right now, what's on the networks with description. And then tune to your local channel, whatever. Lots of, lots of great stuff. And uh, we have a Facebook page. We've got like somewhere, somewhere like 1,500, 2,000 likes now. Uh, we're doing really well with that. Um, I want to mention the D.C. Aid Association and thank them in Washington, D.C. for the, I think, third or fourth time they've made a grant uh, that included $15,000 to us uh, for the uh, Audio Description Project to pursue a specific audio description in initiative in the Washington, D.C. area. We just finished production of an audio-described tour of two areas of the United States Holocaust Memorial and Museum in Washington, D.C. So, listen, you guys come, come to the mid-year meeting. You'll be in the D.C. area. Let me know you're going to be there. I'll get you tickets to go to the White House tour, which is audio-described by the Audio Description Project. Yes, and you'll, you'll be able to go to the Holocaust Museum. And by the way, speaking of the White House, we did the description this year for President Obama's 2015 White House Christmas card. Is that neat? Because it's all silent. It's just music, but it's wonderful images, and the description, I think, does real well with it. So we're, we're, we're doing a lot of stuff, tracking the Department of Justice's uh, notice of proposed rulemaking regarding movie theater access. Uh, the FCC uh, has an NPRM notice of proposed rulemaking on increasing video description. Yes. And by the way, I have to say this because this is a little thing of mine. They're also considering to stop referring to it as video description and let's just call it audio description. Uh, you know... 
you know, it's not like in museums, it's museum description. On television, it's television description. No, it's all audio description, I think. Anyway, so we're doing a lot of work on that, too. Dan mentioned the certification committee, so I won't, um, and that I'm looking forward to working with them. I won't reiterate that. I will simply end by um, encouraging you to attend tonight our audio description project family film night and we've had a little tradition going now for the last three years we always show you the best picture film award academy award winner for best picture with description so tonight we'll be screening spotlight the 2016 best film award with description listen to this folks 10 bucks you get the described movie you get popcorn you get a drink such a deal, huh? I want all of you there. I want all of you there in 7.30 in the Greenway Room on the second floor. Join us. I'll look for you there. That's all I have for you. And now Chris Gray. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Joel. It's my honor and privilege to be able to work with the awards committee. We look at the best of the best and every year choose some awards. I know our time is getting pretty short, so I'm going to run through them very fast, not to diminish any of the awards. We had a long presentation on Tuesday at the awards lunch. <clears throat> uh, Beginning with the, the Performing Arts Award, people in North Carolina are very lucky to have a great organization there. We awarded this year to Arts Access of North Carolina. <clears throat> Joel mentioned to you the great work of Fred Brack and uh, acb.org slash ADP, where you can get all the information you ever need about audio described material. This year's media award goes to Fred Brack for his work for ACB. There are always some people who do wonderful, wonderful work who just don't fit other award categories, and we have a special recognition award category to pick them up. Two people got it this year. One is Mark Messersmith from the Bay Area in California, who does audio-described theater in the Mountain View, Palo Alto area, and uh, Alice Austin, who also does great, great audio-described work. Our next category is mute. From Oh, thank you, Kim, from Massachusetts. <laughs> then we have our Museums and Visual Arts Award, and this is a combined award, a team effort between the Dole Foundation and uh, the Audio Reader Project. And they did an audio-described Americans with Disabilities Act 20-year anniversary project. Our international award this year goes to Bos Salidas y Servicio Limited, this is an audio-describing company. They're in Brazil, and believe it or not, 
they do audio-described football. Now, that's got to be tough. You guys will love the next award, the uh, Margaret Fanstill Research and Development Award. This year, the awardee is none other than Disney Pixar for Disney Movies Anywhere. And our last award, named after our own Barry Levine, who spearheaded so much of our ADP work in its early years, goes to a gentleman. He's also from Brazil. He's here in the room, so he's going to just say a real fast hello to us. Professor Francisco Lima for research in the field of audio description. He needs a mic. Does he need a mic? Yeah. Hello? Say something to the mic. Okay. Just, just speak into there the go? mic a little oh, bit. Oh, right. There you are. Can you hold it? Oh. So, good morning, uh, everybody. Uh, thank you, Chris. I want to say uh, how honored I am to be here today. This is my third ACB convention. Oh, wow. I was, yeah, 2010, then 2011, and now here I am again. And um, the first time I came here, I was like, my gosh, you know, this is wonderful. Um, So many people work in in favor of accessibility, in favor of um, citizenship, above all, working in favor of human beings. And, um, well, I started with auto description because I found many of the work that was being done was not being done with the uh, quality people with blind, blindness or low vision deserve. And uh, the first articles I wrote on auto description was about advo- advocacy. And uh, the other day I said, a audio description has the AD of advocacy. And, uh, well, I want to share these two things with you people. And I hope this helps everybody to go out there and spread the word and demand for more and more audio description. In Brazil, uh, last year, we passed a, a law saying that every, every uh, book, textbook, children book, etc., has to have accessibility, meaning also auto description. Because people have to study and have the opportunity to study biology, chemistry, geometry, and all those other subjects that require images. Children want to uh, play, talk, communicate with other children, make use of, make use of um, audio games, but not only audio games. Uh, Universally accessible games, that is, images and audio. And this law 
that we had also said no copyright issue can be raised to avoid full accessibility. And I think that's the main thing we have to do here. Let's struggle, fight, let's advocate for audio description. That's a way to get it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Lima. Thank you for all the work and all the wonderful things that have been done by everyone who received an award this morning. Give them one more hand. Now, I'd like to, uh, to make an announcement, if I could. And I told Carl I'd keep it under 30 seconds. So uh, I'll be hosting a conversation about Braille this evening in room 3121 from 8 to 9.30. Uh, come, let's talk. You may hear some things you haven't heard yet. Love to have you there. And don't forget that Missouri raffle for a 10-day Mexican cruise. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Chris. You bet. Thank you, Chris. Yes. All right. Um, I have a, one announcement that I want to make, and then I'll recognize a couple of others. Um, I want to remind you that the mini, mini mall, the sidewalk sale, is in the back left-hand corner of the room. There are a number of items on sale, including the ACB jackets are $35 and $38, depending on the size that you're looking for. Um, if there's any 10,000 Dreams items left, they are also on sale. And kids' T-shirts from any convention are $5 a piece. So if you've got any kids you need to take souvenirs to, um, also other shirts on sale, go back and ask questions. We also have canes and a number of items that also are not discounted. Um, we'll be giving, telling you more about that uh, tomorrow. Uh, I would like to recognize Catalina Martinez for a couple of door prizes, and then if there's a couple of announcements, you can call for, get to a mic. <laughs> Catalina, let's okay. draw for one and then we'll see about an announcement. I have a nice little package here from ACB of for, uh, Diabetics. I have a nice eight knitted doilies, a magnet, a nice little knitted hat, and a porcupine tactile little box. It's really cute. And Steve Stanton, are you here? Nope. Alicia Rogan? If you're here, scream. Yes, she's here. Oh, good. Congratulations. She's here. Right. And I can take it to her. Okay. Okay. Catalina, let, let's uh, take an announcement and then we'll do another door prize. Announcement? Someone? Karen Campbell for an announcement, please. All right, Karen, you're recognized. Thank you very much. Um, this is n not the kind of announcement I like to make. It is with sadness that I report this. Many of you probably know Geraldine Jerry Lawhorn, or at least know who she was. I say was because she passed away this past Sunday at the age of 99 and a half. Oh she was very big in the deafblind community in Chicago and was known nationally, which is why I wanted to let people know. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you, Karen. That's sad news. Um, 
Also, I will recognize Jeff Bishop for an announcement. Jeff, are you here? Yes, I'm here. Thank you, Carla. Uh, Good good morning, everybody. Um, You know, we've we've been really hard at work on ACB Link over the past year, and I am looking for people who are Android users who would like ACB Link to be available on Android. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to email link at acb.org and let me know if you want it on your platform, all right? We have some people who have reached out to us, but we want to know what the, you know, the true visibility of this is as far as what the you know, wishes are of, of our membership. Um, I, I want to thank the national office staff, our developer at iaccessibility.net, and, of course, Paul Edwards and the Florida Council of the Blind for their continuing support of ACB Link and their $500 donation that, they've con- that they're continuing to contribute. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Carla. All right, thank you. Catalina, let's do another door prize. Okay, I do have a $25 gift card by ACB of Arizona. Mary Pixarello. Are you here? Jeff Muhlenberg. No. Barbara McDonald. If you are here, please scream so I don't skip Barbara you. Barbara not here? No. Okay. Uh. Tamara Lomax. Mm-hmm. Williams Jones. Who's here? Okay, wonderful. Who is? Ask her to raise a hand or something. Will you raise your hand so we know you're here? We can find you. Okay. What about what he's supposed to be doing? Oh, she's not here. Okay. Thank you. Oh. Oh. So he's there. Okay. One second. Terry Gorman from Illinois. Okay. Oh. Janice Frost, David Ellingwood, Stephanie now, Hall from Minneapolis. Are you now here? Now we know someone is here because we are here. Right? I'm trying. <laughs> Donna Happert. Yeah. All right. All right. Congratulations. Okay, I have one more announcement. Marjorie Beeman uh, just told me that um, there is a representative from Adobe that is out in the cafe area. Right, Marjorie? In the cafe, um, ACB cafe area. And he would like to speak to anyone who would like to speak to him about issues related to Adobe. All right. We will... Uh, be recessed until tomorrow morning. Uh, come early, 7.30, the sidewalk sale opens. 8 o'clock is entertainment. 8.30 is business. Elections at 10. So we will see all of you in the morning. Thanks for being here. Okay, we're going to leave you with the, uh, actually the sponsor interview with Adobe on that note. And we will be back on live event in the next uh, little over an hour with the Board of Publications Editors Workshop, immediately followed by the American Council of the Blind Membership Seminar.
So that's what's on tap for this afternoon. And I will work on getting the general session replay up. I want to get that up as soon as possible because we had internet buffering issues, as you're probably aware of. We apologize for that, but that's... uh, that's a problem on the hotel's end that we will be speaking with the uh, PSAV about. So with that, I will say bye for now, and we'll talk to you again in about an hour or so. This is Rick Morin of ACB Radio. I'm here today with Matt May of Adobe. Matt, on behalf of ACB, we'd like to thank Adobe very much for being a Ruby sponsor of this year's convention, and welcome to ACB Radio. Thank you, and uh, yeah, we're happy to be uh, to, to be sponsoring ACB again this year. One of our product managers, um, Jack Nikolai, is going to be uh, is going to be attending. Uh, he wanted to take a look at what's uh, what's going on, and and uh, so I think he wants to, to to get involved. And so, if you happen to find a Jack Nikolai in in your presence, you can uh, you can have a chat with them about, uh, especially our creative cloud products uh, and uh, and what we're doing. Matt, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what functions your team performs at Adobe? Uh, I am a senior program manager for accessibility, so I have running the, the day-to-day operations of the accessibility team at Adobe. Uh, we have a, a team of you know, product managers and engineers that work across the company with product teams on accessibility, and we have a training program for uh, for people internally that we are actually redistributing to the broader community through the International Association of Accessibility Professionals, or IAAP. Um, but we are generally sort of the the voice of reason, I guess, in, ter- in, in terms of, uh, of making things more accessible to a broader audience, uh, both in terms of the user interfaces that, that we produce and the user experiences that, uh, that, that result from them and the output of the products that, uh, that we make. Matt, on one of your bios I found online, it listed you as accessibility evangelist at Adobe. Could you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be an evangelist? Uh, I'm still the, the unofficial evangelist until we uh, until we cultivate a new one. But um, the, the, for, for us, the, the, that title is usually reserved for people who uh, are are out there thinking about a specific thing right. first uh, and to to me for the you know since, since I, I took that title which was about early 2010 um, the way that I have approached accessibility is that uh, that improving it comes first it comes above where I draw a paycheck uh, it is the it, it is the the most important aspect of this, and you really can't have somebody who who thinks, uh, you know, how does this affect the company before how does it affect people? So I, I, I tend not to make a lot of great friends uh, in teams that, uh, that that I don't feel are performing well. Uh, but I think it's important to have some uh, to have a voice like that within uh, a company that that does. You know, that does a lot of work that impacts a lot of people, uh, and I, 
I like to leave it out on the field, as they say. Matt, how have things evolved at Adobe from 2010 up till today? Well, we're about twice the size of the uh, of team that we that, that we were before, uh, and we uh, actually we're closer to three times the size the size of the team, really, uh, from 2010. Uh, we are. Going from the point where we, uh, you know, we had a small handful of people who were responsible for, you know, awareness within the, within the company, but uh, didn't really have the ability to execute, to actually go in and dig into a, a product. Like we might be able to do little prototypes and sort of explain things, but as an organization now, it's not just our responsibility to raise awareness about accessibility but also sort of determine where to marshal our resources and where to put, uh, you know, engineering talent that actually can make things better. Uh, but one thing that we do organizationally that I think is different from a lot of other uh, companies is that our engineers are also trained to be able to articulate the problem. Uh, I think a, a, lot of, a lot of the time when you have someone that is accessibility specialist or, or engineer or tester, however uh, organization wants to think about that role, um, they will file a bug, right? And then they might even go in and fix the bug after it's been filed against the, the, against the product. Uh, but when you do that, and this is, uh, this is something that we, that we have done in the past, when you take the responsibility to fix the accessibility on somebody else's product. It's great until you turn your back because they have not learned anything new about accessibility. Uh, and so the next time they go in and they change that menu or that panel that you uh, that, that you fix for them, all of your changes get blown away. And so we're working on, you know, we, we work with product teams to make sure that the knowledge that we have gets transferred into that organization and that they pick it up and keep it going. So we're not just advocates, we're not just technical resources, but we're people who are changing the processes of the product teams so that they can speak our language, so that they are able to understand what problems are, uh, you know, are inherent in the way that they're trying to present information or the obstacles of, uh, of interacting with a specific assistive technology. Um, so those are the kinds of things that, 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 that drive us and we, we drill into those technical resources, the ability to, just, to not just go and fix the problem, but say, this is why. These are the ways that, that, that do this, that, that improve accessibility in, in general. We just have a lot of, uh, of, of much more positive results by, by, by going in and doing that. Things getting better and more accessible you know, immediately, like within one release and not over uh, you know, years and years of drilling it into to a product team. As a company, you know, we're roughly a tenth the size of a Microsoft or, uh, you know, or Apple or Google. And we've, you know, it, it, but our sort of image, I think, is outsized, I guess, the, the, that, uh, you know, we are, we, we, but we touch a lot of people. Like, all of those companies use our products to articulate their own, their, their own vision to, you know, to, to create these kinds of experiences.
concept for, for, for something, and then we try to flesh them out. And we're realizing that now we have a responsibility to think of things in advance, like accessibility or internationalization or security, and that it becomes a part of what an engineer does professionally. And one of the initiatives that we've been a part of is uh, Teach Access, uh, which uh, if you haven't heard of this, it was a, an initiative by uh, a bunch of, 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 of tech, tech companies, uh, uh, Yahoo and Facebook sort of stand out in, in my mind, where we created job descriptions that integrate accessibility. So if you post a job description at any of these companies, we have a statement that says, we expect you to understand something about accessibility. So we're affecting the marketplace for engineers to say, this is something that is of value to us, that this is something that we expect. If you are going to be a professional at this level, an understanding of accessibility and its implications in engineering is what you need in order to be successful in this job. So I mean, that's the kind of thing in, in the ecosystem we're talking, you know, so my work isn't just product work. We are, we're concerned with the, the ecosystem for accessibility, just a, a broad understanding, awareness and appreciation for uh, the implications of what we do from an accessibility standpoint. And also outside of that, the issues of hiring and creating a culture where that expertise is valued uh, and where we can not only employ, you know, people with those with those skills, but also, you know, people with disabilities in the you know, in the marketplace as well. Uh, there's another initiative that uh, is happening at the University of Washington uh, with a whole other set of, of people that is, that is about, you know, mainstreaming people with disabilities in technical fields. So we're, we're involved in all of this because it isn't a, you know, it, it's, it's a conversation. You know, we, we need to have those, that, that kind of expertise and we need to have a diversity of voices affecting the experiences that we create. Matt, thank you very much for your time today. Your title of evangelist is well-deserved. We've been speaking with Matt May of Adobe. And again, Adobe is a Ruby sponsor of this year's ACB convention. And Matt, on behalf of ACB, once again, we thank Adobe very much for your support. Thanks for keeping this convention going. And uh, I'm excited. We uh, appreciate the work that ACB is doing. And we're, we're happy to, to contribute to, to the convention that, that you've built up over the years. Here is the agenda for Friday, July 8th in the Nicolette Ballroom, sponsored by J.P. Morgan Chase and Company, beginning at 8 a.m., Entertainment, Maureen Prangoff, Piano, Golden Valley, Minnesota, 8.30 a.m., Invocation, Debbie Hazelton, Dothan, Alabama, Pledge of Allegiance, Burl Colley, ACB Board of Directors, Lacey Washington, 8.35 a.m., ACB Business, ACB Sponsor Recognitions, Marjorie Beeman, Advertising and Sponsorship Coordinator, Austin, Texas, Emerald Sponsor Presentation, Amy R. Furish, JPM Morgan & Chase, ADA Coordinator, Columbus, Ohio, 9 o'clock a.m., Resolutions, Mark Reichert, Chair, Arlington, Virginia, 10 a.m., Elections, 10.30 a.m., Break, 
10.45 a.m. elections continued. 12 noon, lunch break. 1.15, ACB business. 2.45 p.m. break. 3 o'clock p.m., old new business. 5 p.m., adjourn. 5.30 p.m., ACB life member reception. Mirage room, 6.30 p.m., pre-banquet entertainment. North Star Ballroom, Maureen McGinty, Harp. Richfield, Minnesota, 7 o'clock p.m., ACB Banquet, North Star Ballroom, sponsored by Vanda Pharmaceuticals, Master of Ceremonies, Mark Reichert, Chair, ACB Resolutions Committee, Arlington, Virginia, Invocation, Reverend Michael Garrett, Missouri City, Texas, with humor, stories, and song. Terry Kelly will entertain you and inspire you to take a 360-degree look at your life by exploring the difference between failure and success. Presenter Terry Kelly, singer-songwriter, storyteller, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Presentation of George Card Award, Chip Haley, Joplin, Missouri. Co-chair, ACB Awards Committee. Presentation of Nettie Freeman Award, Ron Brooks, ACB Board of Publications. And that concludes the agenda for Friday, July 8th.